0: Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to Something New. This is a new program in the uh, family of uh, X-Lapsed-related programs here. Uh, this is the Essential X-Lapsed, where uh, I'm going to be taking a look at some old stuff here. And uh, this will serve as sort of I uh, I don't know, a sister show to the main X-Lapsed program while I wait for uh, my shipment to arrive here. Um... I have to assume, since this uh, episode has a bright, shiny number one on it, that uh, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually uh, this might be the first episode of this program uh, or of any of my shows that you may be listening to. So uh, the main show here is just X-Lapsed, where I take a look at a current year um, post-Hox-Pox X-Book. This served as my uh, rejoiner to the X-Men family of titles after leaving Probably around 2016, I'd only missed about two and a half years But it, it feels like a lot longer than that Considering just how quickly things happen in comics So it's taken me a little while to catch back up And I decided to jump back in both feet with the uh, current Krakoan era And uh, the main X-Lab show covers my exploits in doing just that uh, As of this recording, that program is up to 185 episodes We've covered uh, basically everything Everything since uh, House of X number one, including some of the more relevant uh, guest appearances of our X characters here. So it's a pretty uh, all-inclusive sort of a situation over there on X-Lapsed. Unfortunately, um, we're caught up. Uh, We're kind of caught up. Uh, I'm kind of beholden to uh, my mail-order comics distributor. So uh, for the moment, I'm all out of books to talk about. Thing of it is, this channel has uh, put out a new podcast every day for, boy, like nine or ten months now. So really, really getting close to a year, and I uh, didn't want to let a pesky thing like not having anything to talk about uh, stop us from reaching that milestone for whatever reason. I I really... Couldn't tell you exactly why it's important to me. Maybe I just want to say that I did it. So you might be asking, um, why the Silver Age? Why are we going all the way back to the beginning here? And uh, that wasn't the initial plan for this. Um, I knew that we were going to catch up on X-Lapsed eventually. I knew we were going to get current, or as current as I can be, being a month behind with my uh, mail-order comics. And I thought about a lot of ways to keep this thing going. Like, what do you talk about when... The main subject is unavailable to be talked about. And I thought about maybe taking a step backwards, you know. We started with Hoxpox. Pox. Maybe we go we go an era before that here. Maybe we launch the Uncanny X-Lapsed and we take a look at the Rosenberg run, the uh, Disassembled into the Age of X-Men, into whatever followed that. I really don't know, because I still haven't read it. Then I thought about maybe doing X-Lapsed Prime, taking a look at the Blue, Gold, Red, Black era, because that's where I was chased off the X-Books. That's where I kind of stopped cold turkey, was right during that run. And I figure, you know what, uh, time heals all wounds, and uh, I get softer just about every day. So maybe, maybe I would uh, receive these stories a little bit better. And uh, especially with knowing what happens afterward, maybe I would be a little bit less um, knee-jerk about the, the color books. But, you know, I started thinking about it here and it was kind of serendipitous Um, Folks who have been listening to the main show know that I'm in the middle of a move uh, A move that I would say that a normal family would accomplish in a couple of days And it's taken me and my wife five months and we're not done yet So it was uh, serendipitous in that I was doing a little bit of packing uh, just a little bit ago And I came across my essential Marvel volumes, you know, the big black and white phone books and uh, I-, I wanted to reread them, but I needed a reason to. Being a content creator uh, makes it so you don't have a whole lot of time for the for fun reading, right? Everything that you read really has to serve a second purpose here. It has to create or lead to the creation of content, whether it be audio, whether it be a blog post, whether it just be I don't know a stream of tweets, whatever. It has to lead to something, and so I've got this wall of Marvel essentials that uh, you know I've read once uh, years and years ago, and I would love to revisit them, but I, I need to make it a multitasker. And I saw the Essential Uncanny X Men number one and uh, thought, hey, maybe this will be, uh, maybe this will be fun, and uh, it's gonna serve a few purposes here. Uh, first, I feel like I lost touch with uh, my X roots. Now, I didn't come in during the Silver Age, I didn't come in during the Claremont days I came in in 1992, so I missed out on a lot of stuff, but I've read back And there was a time where I used to be able to cite X-Facts pretty much chapter and verse You know, Uh, but it has been an awfully long time since I could say that uh, As evidenced by many of the... uh, Statements that I've made on the X-Lapsed program Where it's like, you know, it's been forever since I read this I can't speak to its legitimacy I can't, uh, I come up with excuses not to make a statement, basically Now, I figured, why not go all the way back to the beginning here It's going to give me the opportunity to revisit these old stories These oldest stories that I haven't read in near and on a quarter of a century And get myself a little bit of an X-refresher now, unfortunately, X-Refresher is an even worse name for a show than X-Lapsed. And, well, X-Lapsed is kind of my thing now, I guess. So I'm not exactly lapsed from these, because I have read them before. But I guess time, time while it heals wounds, it also creates lapses. You know, maybe I'm a born-again X-Lapsedist, where i just forgotten more than, uh, more than I ever knew that I knew. <laughs> so uh, that is what we're going to do here. And I figure before we get into it, I want to give a little bit of my history with the book we're going to discuss today, which is, of course, X-Men number one. Now, the first time I ever read this, it was in the Sons of Origins of Marvel Comics, I believe, and I got it from the Kinequat Public Library. And uh, the this is back in probably 1992-ish. I just started collecting the X-Books and the, the X-Men trading cards, and I was really just immersed in X Men. This is like right before the, t- the, the cartoon started up, so it's like I knew I had that to look forward to. It was just a really, really cool time in and uh, a great time to become a fan, you know. I've told the story that the first book I picked up was X Men Volume 2, Number 13, which is a uh, right before the Executioner song, and it's a fairly unexceptional story that <laughs> didn't make a whole lot of sense to me back then, but. We didn't exactly have the luxury of waiting around for jumping on points back then And we also didn't demand them So we either came in and and got with the program or we didn't You know, it was just kind of the way things went And the industry, as uh, it was bubbling up into the speculator boom, was healthy enough At least on, you know, by sight It looked healthy enough to where they didn't have to cater So much like they do today, they didn't have to restart everything at a number one. They didn't have to make everything inviting or or give you the illusion that it's inviting because they could afford to lose a reader if a reader isn't enjoying what they're reading, right? They don't want to, of course, but they can afford it, you know. So they were a lot less knee-jerk in the uh, in the reboot department here. So I'm reading the blue and gold era of the early 1990s. The main characters in it, we have like Wolverine, uh, Gambit, Cyclops in his belt suit, Psylocke, Rogue, uh, Storm, Colossus. So I get this. I get this Sons of Origins of Marvel Comics from the Kinequat Library. And I was shocked that um, who the original five were. Like, I, I, you know, maybe I would have thought like maybe Cyclops would have been there. You know, because he was the leader uh, around the time I started. Maybe Gene. But I never thought that it would be Beast, Iceman, and Angel as the remaining members of the original team. You know, I'm looking at it as like, where's Wolverine? You know, where's Storm? Where's Colossus? Where's Nightcrawler? You know, you figure... Actually, I probably didn't even know who Nightcrawler was at this point because he was on Excalibur. So I asked where all these other characters were because these characters were just... Not the ones I was expecting Absolutely not and That was the first time I read it And uh, it was weird And as you'll see, as you see when we get through the issue today It is a fairly weird issue And I do remember Trying uh, to convince my mother To let me cut the pages out of this library book Like we would buy the book We would say we lost it and we would pay for it And I would cut the pages out So I would have sort of, kind of a copy Of uh, X-Men number one and uh, she said no, and uh, that was probably the right thing to say. Uh, a little while after this, so probably, boy, probably a year or two after this, I found a copy of X-Men number one hanging on the wall at a comic shop for $200, and uh, I was just like, oh man, I gotta have that. Now $200 for X-Men number one probably sounds like an outrageously low price for, for that comic today, and... It probably was an outrageously low price for the book then, too I don't know what the condition was I never was allowed to actually, you know, lay hands on it But I remember attempting to convince my mother to let me get that as a... Uh, my, my birthday comes two days after Christmas So I tried to talk her into letting me have it as like a mixed Christmas birthday present And I'm pretty sure I was very close to getting her to say yes And, um... When I went back to the shop, the book was gone (laughs) So definitely by the time December would roll around, it would have been gone as well Uh, This was Comic World on uh, Sunrise Highway It was uh, one of the many stores that popped up during the speculator boom Where my town went from having like one comic shop to probably five or six within walking distance It was a a wild time to be a comic book fan And uh, back then we thought it was never going to end probably because I was, you know, 12 or 13 years old and uh, very stupid to the realities of retail and uh, collectability. But uh, let's jump ahead to Essential Uncanny X-Men here. Now, the Essential volumes here, they've kind of been replaced these days by the Epic Collections, which are awesome-looking. They are awesome-looking. I don't own any of them yet, but uh, I'm getting tempted. I'm definitely getting tempted, especially with the deep discount that I find them at... at uh, you know, DCBS and In Stock Trades, they are are—they're calling my name. But uh, I always have a soft spot for these Essential books. Yeah, these are the big, thick phone books, black and white art. And uh, they were budget titles. They were budget, or not budget titles, but budget books. They were budget priced because, you know, it was newsprint, like the gray paper with the black and white art on it. And I always wanted to try the Essential series uh, as they were introducing them. And I believe they introduced them with, like, There was X-Men, there was Spider-Man, and Silver Surfer, I think, were the first three they put out. And you'll know it's them because they're the ones who have the spine upside down. You know, the spine, instead of going from top to bottom, these went from bottom to top. It was very, very bizarre, and it looks very strange on the bookshelf, but uh, it makes me feel like my collection has a story. So I I like having the weird and wacky uh, (laughs) differentiating spines, but... I wanted to get into these books. They really called out to me. We didn't get things like reprints. The internet wasn't what it was. It wasn't what it is now. So digital copies were not a thing you could really do. Even though, yeah, I'm not a fan of the digital stuff anyway. But if I really wanted to, I could have. But they didn't have that kind of thing back then. They didn't have the capabilities. And even if they did, internet speeds were just so slow in the mid to late 90s. So... I wanted these essentials. What I'm trying to say here, I'm taking the scenic route. Now, even though they were cheap, relatively speaking, they were like 15 to 20 dollars, right? I couldn't fit them into my tight and already bloated comics budget, you know, because uh, comics then were about I think it was they were two and a quarter, 225 uh, American back then, and if you wanted all the X books, that was you know. Almost a dozen books, right? If you, especially if you bring in things like uh, Alpha Flight and Maverick and uh, Quicksilver. All those, you know, side things that are sort of kind of but not really X-Books. Or I guess mileage may vary on Alpha Flight. But one week, I went to my comic shop here. This was Hero Comics in, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, the fellow there, Hubert, a uh, really cool guy here, he threw a copy of The Essential Uncanny X-Men Volume 1 in my pull box. Yeah, he saw as though I collected all the X books. He thought maybe I'd want this, and I did. I just couldn't afford dropping an extra $15, 20 bucks at the time. But I'm a coward, so rather than handing it back to him and raising or raising any sort of stink, uh, I, I bought it. <laughs> I had to live off of store brand mac and cheese for a few days after that, but uh, I bought it and I read it, and uh, I really you know had a good time with it. It really. Um, Made me feel like I was uh, looking at history, you know. Um, you know, you know. I love weird comics history, and that I am a certified card-carrying fake-ass comics historian. So this was a nice brush with history, and this was about a quarter century ago. And uh, I tell you, this was probably the first and last time that I read any of these issues. And so <laughs> we're going to take a page from the old cosmic treadmill playbook. And we're going to go back to the past now. And we're going to revisit with the X-Men from their very start. And I suppose I could say something pithy like, I hope we survive the experience. But uh, that would be too predictable, so I will not. But let's get into this book here. Now we open in the study of a very exclusive private school where uh, where sits a bald man in a lazy boy. And, you know, this is this first page here, I already feel like I'm experiencing a little bit of the Mandela effect here. Because I could have sworn uh, that Professor X was in his wheelchair on this page. Like, if you would hand me a pencil and paper and say, re, re, you know, recreate this page, draw this page as it looks here, I would have included the wheelchair. So, there's that. Anyway, he telepathically summons his four students for class. So, let's meet them. Front and center is Angel who swoops in overhead, making me question just how large this study actually is. Beast hops in through a window, just hanging there in this featureless void of a room. Iceman comes in and, uh, well, um, you know, again, if you asked me to recreate this page here, I would have had him sliding down a pole that came from like a hole in the ceiling or a hole in the floor, right? Like he was sliding in like a fireman. No, um, he is kinda just pole dancing. Uh, Now Cyclops, he takes up the rear And uh, they all introduce themselves to the readers The fellas immediately attempt to make the professor feel a little bit more comfortable By reclining his lazy boy And adjusting the afghan that covers his legs Total brown nosers Off to the side, Bobby sprays Hank with some slush And it looks like they're about to engage in a bit of roughhousing Angel soothes the sopping beast And now it's time for today's lesson Now it's worth noting here Professor Xavier has not spoken yet Everything he's said up to this point has been telepathic Now he thinks to to his team here He's happy that the teens are able to receive his thoughts And he suggests that eventually There won't be any need to speak aloud to them ever again Okay Uh, Cyclops pushes a training machine into this featureless void of a study And it kind of looks like a forklift or like an order picker But is uh, taking the place of uh, the danger room it seems Now, I think the danger room will be introduced pretty soon, but for now, we've got the forklift thingy. Now, I'm not sure why they're training in a room with a great big beast-sized window in it. Seems a little bit strange, given that the makeup of the school is supposedly a well-guarded secret. Okay, now, while the first student that we see train is Beast, the room is suddenly full of trapeze-looking equipment and hoops, which he dives through and around, which puts his agility and balance to the test. Upon landing, Hank asks how he did, to which the professor barks that he'll get his grade tomorrow. The professor, you know, Kitty Pride was right. He is kind of a jerk. Next up, it's Angel's turn. The room is now full of whirly-doos and whoosie it's which Warren must avoid and evade. He barely manages to make his way through the course, nearly slipping up at the end. Xavier congratulates him on his hovering and recovering abilities. Iceman is then given five minutes of free play. You see, he's the youngest of our group, and he's being treated as such. So for Bobby's free play, he decides to make himself look like an actual snowman, with like a carrot nose, broom, all the all the works here. And this is, of course, before Bobby was, uh, you know, solid ice. He actually looked more like a snowman than an iceman. Beast then hurls a bowling ball in his direction, and it is uh, probably the slowest-moving ball bowling ball ever, as Bobby is able to have a full-on monologue about it and concoct an ice arc to deflect the bauble by the time it makes it across this room. Though in fairness, we have already established that this is quite the sizable room. Professor X is quite impressed, especially considering that Bobby is only 16 years old. We're going to be reminded that he's 16 years old a lot in these early issues. Uh, we learn here that he's a couple of years younger than his peers, which would suggest to us that Scott, Warren, and Hank are 18 right now Finally, it's Cyclops' turn, and his training session is... Well, basically blasting the bejesus out of his fellow students uh, It's worth noting, here he has to operate a mechanism on the side of his visor to open it before unleashing an optic blast And evidently, he can control the size and like scope of the blast by adjusting the dial on that mechanism First, he blasts Beast, then he blasts Angel, finally he blasts Iceman, who has uh, erected an ice cube shield to protect himself. Professor Xavier looks on while his students beat the hell out of one another, suggesting that, hey, a little bit of roughhousing is good for them to blow off steam. He then turns on a dime and demands they stop the horseplay and return to formation at once. I mean, I don't know what's wrong with this dude. Uh, this telepathic message to his students is more akin to an assault. Hank claims that it very nearly bowled him over. So, a very powerful mental blast there. Xavier tells the fellas that he senses a taxi pulling up outside carrying a new pupil. A very... <clears throat> attractive young lady. Which is a creepy thing to say. Uh, worth noting, the fellas are all going to be pretty creepy toward this attractive young lady. And I probably don't need to say... Well, this didn't age well over and over again, so consider this my blanket, this didn't age well statement. Because uh, anytime you're thinking it, I assure you, I am as well. Now, it's worth noting that while Scott, Hank, and Warren are pretty psyched that they're about to be joined by a girl, Bobby couldn't care less. Hmm. Anyway, this attractive new pupil arrives at the school, and of course, it's Jean Grey. Professor X introduces himself as though they'd never met before. This, of course, has been retconned away in the, you know, in the years since. Uh, we would later learn that Xavier met Jean as a young girl following the death of her friend Annie whats which only makes his apparent attraction to her all the more creeptastic. Xavier explains what the school's all about, suggesting that Jean didn't already know. He tells her that she, like his other students, is a mutant, And that his students are called the X-Men due to their having extra powers You get it? It's now time for the fellas to introduce themselves And it's also the first time we get to see them in their civvies And being addressed by their real names Cyclops is given the name Slim Summers, by the way And uh, he looks like an absolute geek Uh, He's got a bow tie on, he's got plaid pants Was was this like ever a style? Maybe it's just laundry day, maybe he lost a bet Now, I don't remember when they first told us that his actual first name is Scott, though I'm assuming it won't be long from now. Angel welcomes Jean to the X-Men, and it's kind of weird that Angel seems to be poised as, like, the leading man here. He's probably the, probably, like, the fifth highest rating character to me in this book. Now, Jean is, of course, given the name Marvel Girl, which leads to Beast trying to figure out what her powers might be. Now uh, he, without his mask on, he's drawn to look kind of like a boilerplate, Kirby, no-neck goofball character Also worth noting, Warren, outside a costume, looks like he's around 40 years old And Bobby looks kind of like Eddie Haskell Uh, Scott, while he's not in this panel, he looks a lot like Marty McFly's dad Scott pushes a chair over for Jean to sit in, which she uses her telekinesis to pull in closer Now this freaks the fellas out, but at least now they have an idea of what it is that she can do Professor X then explains more about himself in the school. He claims that when he was a younger man, and I mean, he's probably all of 30 years old here, even though he looks quite ancient, with, you know, what with looking kind of like Mr. Wizard. You remember Mr. Wizard? Don, Don Herbert? Frank Herbert? One of the Herberts. But uh, he kind of looks like him here. Now, anyway, when he was a younger man, he was distrusted for having his mental powers. He states that the human race was not yet ready to accept people with extra powers and abilities. And so he decided to build a school where mutants can kind of hide out, working to help mankind in the hopes that one day they'll be accepted by them. And uh, for those of you who have checked out the X-Lapsed Origins series over at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com, this sounds a lot like what we saw in Amazing Adult Fantasy number 14 in the first ever Marvel Mutant story, Featuring Tad Carter and uh, the group that would go on to be known as The Promise. Very, very similar. Xavier also claims that both of his parents worked on the atomic bomb. And uh, that he lost the use of his legs during a childhood accident. Beast then um, forces a kiss onto Jean. uh, To which he's hurled across the room. And, uh, it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? Um, I guess that is a bit of X trivia for us, though. If anybody ever asks you, hey, who was the first X-Man to, to, you know, plant lips on Gene? Well, now you know. It was Hank McCoy. Xavier continues his ramble, introducing us to the concept that, uh, not only are there mutants out there, there are evil mutants out there. And, uh, they are the ones who seek to destroy mankind, and it's up to the X-Men to stop that. Now, no sooner does he say this than we shift scenes and meet one such evil mutant. We go to a secret laboratory by Cape Citadel, and inside is Magneto. Or the miraculous Magneto, if uh, we go by what he calls himself. He vows to take the Earth from the humans, and he refers to mutants as Homo Superior. Which surprised me, because I didn't remember Homo Superior being a thing from the very get-go. But, hey, here we are. Now he's watching, via monitor, a test missile being launched from the Cape He then uses his magnetic powers to screw with it The big brains at NASA can't figure out what's wrong And the next day, the Daily Globe newspaper reports that this is the sixth such failed launch Later on that day, all sorts of metallic artillery starts going nuts We got Gatling guns and tanks alike They begin behaving as though they've got minds of their own The troops look to the sky and see a message written in metallic dust. It reads, Surrender the base, or I'll take it by force. And it's signed, Magneto. And I mean, literally signed. It's in cursive, the word Magneto. Which uh, is, you know, kind of precious. Uh, Magneto then launches another missile from a silo and rockets it toward an unmanned target ship in the sea. At this point, our man tires of working remotely, and so he just saunters on in to Cape Citadel. He is naturally mocked for being dressed like a big old goof. And yeah, I should probably mention that, uh, well, I mean, he's most definitely Magneto. Uh, his helmet is a little bit different from what we're used to seeing nowadays. Uh, the, hel- the helmet, instead of having like a thick rim or a ridge at the top of it, um, for a lack of better term, here it has like more distinct and larger horns, which I suppose aids in the obvious uh, evilness of the getup. up um, Anyway, Magneto uses his powers in order to take over the base As he makes his way inside, he mentions that he'll have to change his magnetic charge from positive to negative Which I didn't realize was a thing he ever had to, like, consciously do But uh, well, we're still learning, aren't we? In an office, Magneto, who is almost completely obscured by a world word balloon All we see are his legs, it's really, really funny He informs the Citadel bigwigs that he claims the cape for Homo Superior He then snags all the soldiers in a magnetic fence Rendering them fairly useless Or I suppose even more useless Back at the school, Jean Grey tries on her costume While the fellas all peep on her from around the corner Yep One of them, I think it's Bobby Suggests that Jean was poured into her suit And yeah, it's fairly form-fitting I'll give him that one Jean, upon realizing that the fellas are perving on her Tells them to back off Hank calls her gorgeous and tells her not to get mad. This scene is cut short by a psychic command from Professor Xavier. Uh, you know, nobody better be pervin' on Jean except him. Well, no, that's not actually what he said. He actually gives the, the team 15 whole seconds to report to the study for briefing. They thankfully arrive in time and are advised about what's going on at Cape Citadel. Magneto is identified as the first evil mutant to surface, and the X-Men are told that this confrontation will serve as their baptism of fire. And so, the X-Men suit up and load into Charles's souped-up Rolls-Royce. From here, they're taken to Xavier's private jet, which whooshes them down to... I'm assuming Florida? Uh, faster than the speed of sound, which is pretty damn quick, isn't it? And so, we're back at the Cape, and the X-Men have arrived. They introduce themselves and are naturally mocked for their costumes. The soldiers agree to stand down and allow these weird teenagers to do their thing. And so they rush into the base. Cyclops runs right into Magneto's force field and decides to try to blast his way through it. He nearly knocks himself out in the process, but... Scott's actually able to manage to break through Magneto's defenses. Magneto pulls back and he launches five of the Cape's hunter missiles. Now these missiles will be attracted to the X-Men by their own body heat. It's worth noting that he does this by operating a control panel, like with his fingers, rather than just using his miraculous magnetic powers. Angel deftly dodges the onslaught. Bobby then hurls some ice grenades at the missiles and actually manages to hit and take down all but one. So, heck of an arm on this kid who, you know, I mean, is even more impressive when we realize he's only 16 years old, am I right? Final missile is hot on Warren's tail. Beast swoops in below and catches the little rocket with his feet. Jean then uses her TK abilities to take control of the missile, and she dumps it in the ocean where it goes boom, likely killing an entire undersea ecosystem and probably really ticking off a certain submariner, but uh, we'll we'll see him eventually. Magneto then hurls a bunch of metallic debris at the X-Men, which Cyclops is able to take out pretty easily with an optic blast. And so Magneto then sets a tank of rocket fuel on fire and sends it in the X-Men's direction. It explodes because, you know, of course, it's a flaming tank of rocket fuel. However, before it did, Bobby, who I want to remind you is only 16 years old, is able to erect an ice igloo shield. Now, the X-Men, while not blowed up, are covered in a whole bunch of rubble, and Magneto thinks he's won the day. However, from the pile of rubble, shoots an optic blast. The X-Men then go full frontal assault on the Master of Magnetism, which basically means that, uh... Well, Cyclops hits him with another optic blast um, Magneto decides here that discretion is the better part of villainy And decides to hightail it on out of there Leaving waves and waves of impenetrable magnetic energy in his wake So he cannot be followed Whatever the case, it would appear as though the day has been saved The Cape Citadel troops refer to our hero's antics as uncanny Before telling them that the name X-Men will be of the most honored Well, I guess that'll be nice while it lasts, huh? We wrap up with Professor Xavier calling his students back home, and check this out. He sort of kind of delivers the line. You know, the line. He says, and now return to me, my X-Men. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, we meet the Vanisher. Well, this was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Um, This was very, very strange to read, especially not having read it in such a long time, and... uh, this really is, like, not my wheelhouse as far as it comes to, uh, to the X-Books here. And I can still remember how weird it was to read it way back, you know, when it was a library book back in 1992, 1993. And, uh, I mean, like I said at the outset here, I, I probably would have guessed that Cyclops would have been an original. Maybe Gene, but uh, not the rest, you know. Um, and also, I mean, I didn't know Diddley. About X-History back then I was still very, very new to the hobby So, like, I see the Beast here And, uh, well, where's his fur? Right? Um, I only knew The, the Beast with fur I didn't know about the, you know, the Amazing adventure story I didn't know any of that stuff So, I see this character and it's like Is that a different guy? Is there Was there a different beast? Uh, very weird I didn't know that he started off unfurry Also, we've got, uh, Warren Worthington here, who I only knew As Archangel I didn't know he was the angel. So I'm looking for this, you know, the blue skin metallic wings, you know, sort of sinister looking character here and uh oh, well, that's that's not what we got at all. <laughs> we got the angel. So uh what reading this issue did back in the day for me was tell me that, you know, I had a whole lot to learn about my new favorite comics team and uh Putting in the work in the years and decades that followed Really made uh, the team feel more like mine You know, it made it feel all the more worthwhile I mean, here I am, like literally looking at history You know, we're not just learning about history We're actually experiencing it Which is one of the things that, uh, you know Periodicals and comics, is. it's very unique to uh, this art form You know, we actually can, in a way Go back to the summer of 1963 Which, you know, actually reminds me that uh, I never read the credits for this issue, so uh, I was in such a uh, in such a zone talking about my history with this book. I neglected to read off the uh, credits, so I'll do that right now. This is, of course, X Men number one at a September nineteen sixty three cover date. The story is called X Men. Okay, writer and editor Stan Lee, pencils Jack Kirby, inks Paul Reinman, colors. I haven't the foggiest idea. They went uncredited. So if uh, anybody out there knows who colored this, or maybe you are the person who colored this, please reach out. and Let me know, and I will, uh, I will, st- I will include a correction. Letters, Sam Rosen. Cover price twelve cents. Now, where do we start talking about this issue here? Um, well, I suppose we can start with Professor X being kind of a jerk, right? <laughs> he was uh, kind of just all over the place here. Uh, in one panel, he looks like a caring father figure, and the next, he's just like this strict disciplinarian. It's, and I'm pretty sure that that is going to continue for, uh, for at least the first handful of these issues here. He just goes two different speeds at all times here. It's very, very bizarre and very off-putting. Uh, seeing Angel as kind of, uh, it feels like he's kind of being poised as the uh, the central character here. He gets a. Uh, I mean, he has a very fantastic look in comparison to the rest. You know, he's got the wings, he can be in the air or on the ground. So, seeing the reason that maybe Kirby would uh, have a little bit more fun drawing him in different poses and just different angles that the other characters wouldn't, you know, be afforded, right? Just being on the ground. So, it's interesting seeing Angel. And I do recall, uh, one of the few things I recall about this era, I think there is going to be a bit of contention between Angel and Cyclops. Uh, in both, uh, you know, uh, not so much seniority, but uh, who's going to be leading and also who is going to be uh, with Gene. So we've got that to look forward to. Now, Scott definitely comes across as, you know, as he usually does. You know, the the quick and dirty on Scott Summers is that uh, he's kind of Xavier's, you know, uh, Brown-nosing lackey, <laughs> to, for lack of a better term, and here it's uh, very much in that vein. Here, he's the one, kind of running the uh, the training forklift uh, machine thing. Uh, he's kind of a he's kind of the TA to the Xavier School at this point. Beast, very different from what we uh, know him as now. Here, he's kind of a swarthy. He's planting lips on Jean Grey. Uh, very weird. Um, definitely, I mean. I don't want this to be me saying, hey, this didn't age well over and over again, but that was, uh, you know, <laughs> a little, uh, little suspect, right? Uh, Bobby was, uh, well, he's only 16 years old. And as such, we can probably come to expect a lot of immature shenanigans from uh, young Mr. Drake over the next uh, several episodes and issues because, uh, I mean, he is just 16 years old, which when you compare a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old uh, in the same environment, I mean, that's just worlds, worlds of difference, right? Now, uh, Jean coming in. Um, Jean is a little bit more difficult to uh, kind of uh, peg down here, since we know so much has been added to her backstory, right? Like she comes in here and she hasn't like no idea. She doesn't know what the school's all about. She's never seen Xavier before. Uh, when I mean, we know from future stories that well, she did know Xavier. She was actually the first of these characters to meet Xavier when she was just a child or a younger child, I should say. And so it's weird, and it's hard to kind of uh, work around, right? It's hard to kind of remove that from her story and uh, just kind of take it at face value that, uh, yeah, this is the first time she's ever meeting Xavier, and she doesn't even know what the school's all about. But we'll play more with that as we, uh, as we learn more and uh, revisit these early issues here. Uh, Magneto, the miraculous Magneto here, the first evil mutant to surface um well the X-Men took him out kind of easily didn't they <laughs> That was kind of strange here especially when we get into later issues here and see how how much difficulty the X-Men have in taking down much uh, retroactively lesser foes so it's kind of funny to see um I definitely love uh the idea of Magneto just walking uh, into a uh into Cape Cape Citadel and just saying hey this is mine now and signing his name in the sky it's just Such fun Silver Age silliness, right? Just really, really fun. I'm guessing that he was dispatched so easily. And, I mean, he did retreat. He wasn't really beaten, but uh, he did retreat. He was forced to run away. I got it. You know, I mean, they didn't know what Magneto was going to become, you know, in 50, 60 years. So this was just a way to introduce the team, introduce the idea that there are evil mutants out there who have these miraculous powers, and uh, let the X-Men... Give them an exhibition, right? Let them show their stuff here. And uh, they, it was all done very, very well. Cyclops using his optic blasts was, you know, every every shot served a purpose. Bobby taking out those uh, heat-seeking missiles. Angel kind of, uh, kind of luring that last one to following him so Beast can grab it with his giant feet and then Jean can take it with her TK and send it into the ocean. I mean, this was great t- use of tandem offense here that shows... And I mean, this team has not trained together uh, At least with, you know, Jean Jean's, you know, this is her first outing here She didn't even get a training session So the fact that they worked and melded so well together Is uh, pretty cool and a really fun way to uh, just show them You know, showing their stuff And we get a better idea of what they're able to do Now the art is, uh, of course, Jack Kirby And uh, I I think Jack Kirby is a hot and cold sort of uh, artist a lot of people will love everything he does, a lot of people will hate everything he does. I'm I'm kinda in the middle of that. There's some Kirby stuff that I like, there's some Kirby stuff that I don't much care for. Um as long as the X Men were in costumes, I thought they looked great. Uh outside their costumes though, they all looked like uh, middle aged mooks who would be hanging out at like the, the billiards parlor and <laughs> with like cigarettes hanging out of their mouths here. So I know he has his uh you know, he has his go to faces here and uh we do see a little bit of that But overall, I mean, I mean, you really can't complain about the art It told the story, it did what it was supposed to do And despite the fact that uh, we weren't really keen on backgrounds in this issue I mean, the rooms were all featureless voids um, Other than that, though uh, I, I guess after without all those complaints, I have no complaints But... Uh, Overall, I'm, I'm fairly certain a lot of people listening to this have already read this, probably several times over. If you haven't, maybe give it a look. Maybe give it a look. It might be uh, a little eye-opening or just a little weird that uh, the books that we are looking at right now on Krakoa and uh, before that, they all started here, and it's a, it's a pretty wild little scene. But uh, I think that's where I'll leave it for today. Now, as this show will be running concurrently with the main X-Labs show, uh... I probably won't be crossing the streams in so much as uh, the mailbag is concerned. So I figure mailbag items that have to do with the uh, essential X-Laps, they'll all be covered here, and main X-Laps will stay on main X-Lapsed. So if you would like to reach out and talk about these early issues of X-Men, I would love for you to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90 X-Men, And you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. Also, for all your Chris and Reggie comics listening needs, you can head over to Reggie.podbean.com and that is available anywhere you find noise on the Internet. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, uh, I would love for you to share the show, spread the word, Just let people know that uh, this little corner of the comics internet exists. It would really, really mean a lot to me. Speaking of which, it really means a lot to me that you would spend some of your day with me today. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to the most difficult episode of any ongoing podcast, episode number two of The Essential X-Lapsed. Uh, it's the most difficult for a few reasons, um, mostly because, you know, the the shine is kind of uh, gone here. It's kind of like when Marvel or DC reboot a uh, an ongoing series, and you have that first issue, and you're all excited, and then there's a second issue, and it's just... Uh, Business as usual. So here we are, business as usual, and today we're going to be talking about, uh, well, look at that, X-Men number two. It's had a November 1963 coveted. It's hard to say 19 in the uh, beginning of a year, isn't it? Story is called No One Can Stop the Vanisher, written and edited by Stan Lee, with pencils by Jack Kirby, inks by Paul Reinman, lead is uh, Sam Rosen, colors by Your Guess Is As Good As Mine, and this had a cover price of 12 cents. I don't know what day this was released, so we're not even going to try So let's start this one with, uh, the cover Now our cover has us in front of our nation's capital Well, for those of us in the United States, anyway The world's most handsome evil mutant, the Vanisher, is surrounded by the X-Men But, uh, still, he's making threats Marvel Girl is directing traffic, telling the fellas to stand back on the orders of Professor X Professor X is, like, sitting right there and, uh, I mean, so far he hasn't been shy about dishing out orders So, uh, I don't know, maybe he and Jean already have that special bond Now we open with a traveling montage And uh, I would like to imagine that Sheena Easton's 9 to 5 Is uh, playing in the background of this scene You know, the my baby takes the morning train uh, The professor has psychically summoned the X-Men to him So we are watching the X-Men head into school Now Beast literally hops a train from New Haven And I would assume that means Connecticut But uh, that would make it a, well, if Google's correct A nearly four-hour train ride Which would include a change-off in uh, New York City before going up to Westchester Uh, There is also a New Haven, New York But that town is very tiny and it's near the Canadian border And it's a five-hour car ride And if you believe it, something like a 13-hour train ride So, I don't know, we'll say Connecticut, I don't know Elsewhere, Warren Worthington in his angel togs Is being gang molested by a gaggle of teenyboppers Like, literally, they are groping him, kissing him They just love them some angel Now Jean's off to the side and she doesn't like what she's seeing So she uses her telekinesis to lift the, quote, chickadees off of Warren And then she deposits them atop a theater marquee Now the movie being shown here is Teen-Ager's Tears Starring Tuesday Weld which sadly doesn't appear to be an actual film that exists in our world. Now, it's worth noting, just a year before this issue hit, Tuesday Weld was Stanley Kubrick's first choice to star in Lolita. Now, she claimed that, uh, well, she was Lolita in real life, and so she really didn't have a need to uh, take the role. Okay, then. Anyway, the mental exertion of telekinetically relocating several hundred pounds of raging hormones proves to be a little too much for Jeannie, and so she faints right into Warren's waiting arms. Slim and Bobby, during their trek to the school, witness a wall falling over at a construction site. Cyclops uses the full intensity of his optic blasts to pulverize the wall before it can crush any helpless construction workers. They are thanked by the crew. I mean, humans just love the X-Men. I mean, there's no fear, there's no hate. It's only love. Now, to make it the rest of the way to the school, Scott and Bobby hitch a ride on an ice cream truck. Now, okay, guys, this ice cream truck I mean, they are dressed in their X-Men costumes right now Bobby is a snowman Scott has his, you know, his togs and his visor, right? The school, the, 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 the ice cream truck here Drops them right off at the Xavier School Um, I, I, I thought this was supposed to be a secret location I don't know Whatever the case, Bobby is forced to pay For the three chocolate chip pops that he stole on the drive home now, inside, Professor X coldly commands them to assemble before him, and uh, I tell you, he's a real jerk here. Kitty Pride was right. He then demands silence while he plays a film strip on the wall about the teens and their changing bodies. Well, no, it's, it's actually a film strip about our new villain, The Vanisher. Bobby accidentally speaks, interrupting the professor, which results in him getting a demerit. <laughs> well, my heavens, a demerit. Uh, the film shows the vanisher casually asking a police officer for directions to a bank because he plans to rob it. First, he gets mocked for his costume, though, because I'm pretty sure every costume character in this book is going to be made fun of at least once for their fashion sense. Anyway, the police decide to follow the vanisher into the bank so they can arrest him after he commits his crime. So I guess they really want a rock-solid case against him here, you know. Uh, they, they need to see this happen. So the vanisher, he's in there, he takes a loop, But, before the officers can cuff him, he, believe it or not, he vanishes. Cyclops wonders if this means that the vanisher's a mutant. Professor X assumes this to be the case. Then, for no reason other than the fact that he's just 16 years old, Bobby starts hurling a torrent of snowballs all over the featureless void of her room that we're currently in. Jean then uses her powers of teleportation to redirect the snowballs and send them right back into Bobby's face. And yes, she does say... Teleportation. Uh, maybe all Stan just has the vanisher on the brain here I don't know This is probably why you should never edit your own work Yeah, I love Stan, but come on Professor Xavier once again demands order And tells his team that they need more training And so he introduces us to The Danger Room Which is the only room in the mansion That's meant to be a featureless void, believe it or not Now remember that training session we looked at in issue one? Well, this is... Basically more of that Uh, First up, we see Angel Who fails to catch a missile that the professor fires at him Xavier tells him to pretend the missile is the vanisher Okay After checking Warren's vitals, the prof tells him he needs to build up his resistance The beast is next, and he does some flippity-doos over some obstacles And uh, while he applauds himself for a job well done, a trap door opens under his feet And, well, he goes falling Hank is able to catch himself in the shaft, which sounds a lot less uh, innocent than it's supposed to. Uh, from there, he's able to stop his descent and even flippity-doos his way out of the hole, and the professor is mighty pleased. Speaking of mighty, we shift scenes over to the mighty Pentagon, which is to say, you know, the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. The Vanisher appears here, and he introduces himself as Homo Superior. He threatens that, in the next few days, he's going to come back and steal some top-secret government plans. These are the Continental Defense Plans, to be precise. He explains to a couple of Pentagonian bigwigs that he has the power of teleportation. And I'm both glad and disappointed that he didn't say telekinesis here. Uh, One of the bigwigs refers to this as pure science fiction balderdash. And you know, I don't think I've ever seen anyone unironically use balderdash in a sentence. Next we know the Vanisher is chilling with a bunch of underworld hoodlums. Now, they all see him as being their meal ticket, since he is so powerful, and he agrees to let them become his lackeys. Back to the Danger Room, where Marvel Girl is attempting to hoist a gigantic ball over her head using her teleport kinesis. This proves to be too daunting a task, and so it's left to Cyclops to blast the ball before it crushes her. Bobby uses this opportunity to be, uh, well, a 16-year-old again. I've mentioned that, right? He slides an ice horse toward Scott and Jean uh, for reasons that I'm sure made sense to him. Bobby then engages in some training of his own, creating an ice grapple, which, like, like you know, like a grapple, like, a, like a mountain climber. You know, uh, shouldn't he just be working on his ice slide? Maybe they haven't figured that part out yet. Now, while the team continues to train, Professor X reaches out to his FBI contact. Welcome to the book, Special Agent Fred Duncan. And we're going to be seeing uh, quite a bit of Fred Duncan throughout these early issues. Now, Duncan, it's worth noting, has to wear this weird tiara, or a scalp device, in order to communicate telepathically with the professor. I guess they didn't know just how powerful Xavier's mind was at this point, which is fair. Is fair. Duncan informs Xavier that the Vanisher has threatened the Pentagon. And you'd think this would be more urgent. Like, maybe Duncan would have just picked up the phone and called, rather than waiting for Xavier to ring him up on his scalp device to tell him about it? I don't know. Anyway, lickety-split, the X-Men are loaded into a McDonnell XV-1 convertoplane which is apparently a real thing that exists, or at least existed. It's a, a compound helicopter. You see, it can fly higher and faster than a normal helicopter, but it can still take off and land vertically, so it doesn't need a whole lot of runway to, to make, its, uh, you know, make its takeoffs and stuff. From here, we go back to the Pentagon. The Continental Defense Plans, which our evil mutant of the by month has threatened to steal, is sitting on a desk in a briefcase surrounded by four, four armed nudniks. Like, why haven't they just been hidden somewhere else? Like, why haven't the Pentagonians just maybe filled this briefcase with blank pieces of paper or fake plans? I don't know, why ask why? Anyway, the vanisher then pops into the scene, like on top of this table Grabs the briefcase, and with the plans he ports out into a hallway And I've gotta ask, uh, why didn't he just port out like 20 miles away in any direction? Jack <laughs> goes right into a hallway And there he's dog piled by a bunch of Pentagonians But, uh, you know, he vanishes again, go figure He reappears on the steps of the building um, And I don't know if the Pentagon... Has steps I I really don't know, because I I would Google it You know, the steps to the Pentagon But uh, that would just tell me how to draw a Pentagon It's got five sides, don't you know Anyway, it's outside on the steps of the Pentagon Where the Vanisher runs into the Uncanny X-Men Jean can immediately sense that the Vanisher is a mutant I don't know if that's a... I don't know how she can do that, but okay Worth noting, the Vanisher immediately knows who the X-Men are, so uh, word has gotten around from their uh, Cape Citadel adventure last issue. Angel swoops in, and he grabs the Vanisher, who vanishes. Beast is able to grab the plans, but he stands around like an idiot, celebrating so long that the Vanisher pops back in and re-steals them. Hank was just so happy that he might be invited onto the Ed Sullivan show for his heroism, and... uh, well, you, I guess you, uh, you snooze, you lose, or whatever that is. Cyclops zaps the briefcase out of the Vanisher's hand, and Jean is able to grab it with her teleport kinesis. Vanisher pretends to be impressed by the young mutants long enough to sidle up alongside Jean and then spray her in the face with sleeping gas. Iceman then ices up the Vanisher's mitts, but... the Vanisher vanishes. And the X-Men are left to lick their wounds. The next day, the X-Men's failure is on the cover of the Star Bulletin newspaper, while the sales kid touts that the Vanisher made the X-Men look like monkeys, which I would think Beast might take personally. Back home, the X-Men watched the news. So they went all the way back to Westchester? Like, why not get a hotel room in DC? Or maybe crash with Duncan, I don't know. Anyway, the Professor and the fellas are all quite upset. Jean just leans up against the wall and stares into the reader's eyes With a sad and forlorn look on her mug Now the news report reveals that the Vanisher has now demanded Ten million dollars Tax-free Tax-free Are supervillains known for paying taxes on the money they steal? What kind of balderdash is this? Iceman then reminds us that he's only 16 years old by Icing up Warren's wings But why? Bobby claims that he's using, quote, quick-drying liquid ice. (laughs) What in the hell even is that? Uh, Cyclops uses his optic beams, beams even, to melt Warren's wings, while the professor lambastes the team for their childish antics. And, I mean, they, they are children, right? Especially Bobby, who's only 16. Xavier's decided that it's finally come time for him to join them on the battlefield here, which, I mean, wow, this is like their second outing. I might mention here that uh, the X-Men had an easier time with mag friggin Neto than they currently are with Telford-friggin-porter. Huh. Now, the professor claims that this will be an exercise to illustrate how strength isn't always enough. He then shows them another film strip, and it's The vanisher Vanishing at 20,000 frames per second. And that's what the, uh, the dorks on Reddit will be complaining about come the time of the PlayStation 25, probably. Now, the film strip is supposed to show the teens that this battle will require a different tact. The professor goes on to call the White House to inform them of his plan. And an aide confirms that he will pass this information on to the chief executive, which I'm assuming means President Kennedy? Though I I might be mistaken. Next we know the X-Men are back in D.C. in front of the Capitol building. They find themselves faced off with the Vanisher and, like, two dozen underworld lackey goofs. He's here, of course, to collect his ten million tax-free dollars. And so, the Professor rolls over to the Vanisher and... mind wipes him. That's it. Uh, The Vanisher's forgotten how to teleport, he's forgotten who he is, he can barely stand up. He is just, like, completely out of it here. Just then, the Underworld mooks, realizing that their meal ticket is now a drooling simpleton, decide to attack. The Beast bounces around the lawn, disarming each mook. Cyclops then blasts the ground below them, causing them to fall into this resulting hole Iceman creates like an apple pie lattice pattern You know, like a, like the, the the pattern on top of an apple pie He does this in ice, of course, because he, he is Iceman Over the hole in order to keep the baddies in uh, Elsewhere on the lawn, Jean uh, teleport kinetically, grabs some guns And points them right back at the bad guys And then Angel swoops in with a flying clothesline And, uh, well, that's about it for the goofs we wrap up the issue with the X-Men learning a powerful lesson That sometimes the greatest power on Earth Is the magnificent power of the human brain Which is all well and good as a lesson, right? But uh, I don't have to remind you guys that uh, not all of us have the ability to mind-wipe our foes, do we? So maybe we need to try a little bit harder than Professor X does So let's talk about this here Wow, um, <laughs> these these old Silver Age stories are pretty dense, aren't they? Um, usually when you think about the X-Men and wordiness, uh, your brain might immediately go to Chris Claremont or maybe John Byrne About just how word-packed those pages can be But, uh, you know, Stan's no slouch in the words department here He does not uh, he does not give uh, Kirby a whole lot of space in a lot of these pages here It's probably why we have such uh, sparse backgrounds in a lot of these panels It's just... Why bother? It's just gonna get covered with a with a word balloon anyway, right? I mean I think it was last issue, or I it was obviously last issue, there's only the second episode. Where we saw Magneto, we saw his feet, because his entire body was covered in a word balloon. So these issues be wordy. They sure in the hell do. <laughs> Let's go with some takeaways here. I hear the first thing that jumped out to me, and this was early on in the issue here, is that the X-Men are almost like universally loved. Um, There really is no hatred and fear, and that will eventually come. But I'm looking forward to seeing that happen because maybe this is just uh, me, Mandela, affecting myself, or just uh, a case of misremembering or conflation. But I assume that from the very get-go, the uh, the fear and hate would be uh, present. So uh, when this finally, when the worm here finally does turn, and the X-Men are, you know, hated by humanity. I wonder how forced that's gonna feel Because here, like, it seems as though they're treated no differently than the Fantastic Four or the Avengers It's like, hey, you saved us, we like you You know, and I mean, Warren's getting molested by a bunch of teenagers here It's very weird for a group that's supposed to be, uh, like, outcasts here This is just an odd little bit of uh, ex-trivia that I'd pretty much completely forgotten about So that's very interesting to see And uh, again... When the worm finally does turn here, I just uh, I'm very excited to see if it feels organic, natural, or if it feels like, okay, well, we need to differentiate this team from uh, you know, the other super teams here. We need to give the X-Men a reason to be different. And uh, well, we'll see. We'll see when we get there. I'm looking forward to it. Another takeaway is that the X-Men are a little uh loose- lipped with uh, their secrets here, aren't they? Um, and I mean, I've joked before. That Professor X is going to... His go-to for this era is going to be the mind wipe. You know, that's going to be plan A. You know, it's like, I don't like this person, or this person poses a potential threat, so boom, their memory's gone. That's just his go-to. So here, I mean, we have Cyclops and Iceman being dropped off at Xavier's in their costumes by an ice cream man. That feels weird, right? (laughs) Like, that shouldn't... Like, was the ice cream man mind wiped on his way out? I... I really don't know Also, Professor X appearing in public Alongside the X-Men And talking about being a mutant That's also kind of strange here Um, And I've told the story before About uh, the big reveal During the Morrison run Where Professor X goes on TV And he comes out of the closet As a mutant, right? And I remember people really uh, Like, really getting worked up about that It's like, wow, this is a huge deal And for me, I was like Didn't everybody already know? You know, I didn't think anybody thought he was a human. I thought everybody just knew he was part of the X-Men. He was, you know, the the X in the X-Men to to the layman, perhaps. So I didn't see that as being a big deal. And then here we have him on the White House lawn after talking to the president or checking in with the president, talking about being a mutant, and then, uh, you know, robbing a guy of his memories. It's uh, (laughs) a... Very, very weird So I guess um, the identities and the powers in the school will only be a secret when the story demands that it needs to be a secret, I guess (laughs) I guess we'll see as we go We get uh, yet another training sequence I I shouldn't say yet another, this is only the second issue But uh, one thing that I do remember about these early issues of X-Men is that we're going to see a bunch of these training sequences And that's fine, that's fine, it just feels uh, a little bit repetitive is all But I mean... Gotta remember, this was a bi-monthly book back in 1963, and these weren't collectibles back then, as as much as uh, they would become. So you gotta assume that a kid might pick up issue two, and not not even have access to issue one, or even know there was an issue one. And in some cases, so uh, I, I understand a bit of the repeat- repeatability here. I don't think Stan and Jack figured that some you know 40 year old idiot in 60 some odd years was gonna be. Uh, Doing a show about this every day, so <laughs> you know I gotta. I'll concede that one to them here. Uh, rep- repetition is fine in this situation, I suppose. It's just something we're gonna see a lot of, I think, in the next uh, several episodes here. But speaking of the training sessions here, one thing that really stuck out to me was uh, Professor Xavier taking Angel's vitals after he uh, performed. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. I thought that was a neat little bit where. It's like okay, you're done. Come over here. I'm gonna to listen to your heartbeat, and we're gonna we're gonna monitor you. I, just something I never would have thought of. Um, I mean, you don't see that now. You don't see that in the the Shiar uh, Danger Room. It's just an interesting little bit there. It's uh, I, I really dug it. It lent to a bit of uh, I don't I don't know if it's so much realism, but um, it's kind of the way you would expect a coach to uh, to react or to perform and. Uh, to mentor, you know, just making sure that that his charges are are safe and healthy and uh, not overdoing it I really kind of dug that The Vanisher bits were uh, silly but fun And, uh, I mean, this is all fiction, so everything is, you know, written with a reason But uh, I feel like so much of this was written just to facilitate the next scene And, I mean, that's fine, that's, you know, that's a way of telling a story But it's like, the Vanisher goes and he, he you know, he makes the threat then we get Fred Duncan who reveals the threat. The X-Men show up. The Vanisher steals something, then zaps himself into a hallway so he can get dogpiled. Then zaps himself right outside the building so he can get attacked. Very weird. Um, and uh, it was interesting how uh, the X-Men were like unable to beat him here. Just last issue, they made Magneto run off and and uh, you know scurry away. But here the Vanisher—it's a whole different uh, ball of wax here and. Um, I think that's going to be the pattern for the uh, first handful of these issues as we introduce a uh, rogues gallery. I think it's going to be more repetition. I think it's going to be the X-Men going up against the bad guy, losing initially, and then coming back around and either defeating them or standing off to the side while Professor X mind wipes them. That's kind of going to be the M.O. going forward here, I believe. Finally, just a little bit on the characterization here. Um... I feel like they haven't quite settled on who these characters just are, are just yet, but I mean, it, we're only two issues in, that's perfectly fine to uh to still be learning these characters and trying to figure out what their what their role is going to be, what their personality is going to be. All we really know is that they're teenagers and uh they're sometimes immature and Professor X is a jerk <laughs> and uh and Jean's the girl. That's all we really know at this point, but um hopefully sooner than later we'll start to uh Maybe we'll start learning more about Warren being, you know, the the playboy and uh, Beast being intelligent And uh, maybe Bobby will remain immature because he, he is only 16 years old But we'll have Scott with his angst and Gene being like the low-key, most powerful person on the team and stuff like that I think we'll get there probably sooner than later and um, I'm looking forward to uh, when we are there uh, more Jack Kirby art, and Kirby, like I said last episode, hot and cold. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's, sometimes it's less good. You know, when you talk about Kirby, stock faces come up, right? You know, the the concept that Kirby has certain faces for certain character types. And I mean, we have the the Vanisher here, who I swear, I you know, you'll see in any DC Bronze Age comic as like the the frog faced guy. It's just very, very similar It's one of Kirby's go-to faces And, uh, I mean, that's not a good thing or a bad thing It's just kind of a thing And, uh, I mean, again He didn't think that there'd be an idiot here Talking about it on a a podcast In, you know, 60 years hence So, what are you gonna do? (laughs) But uh, I think that's all I got to say About this issue here But before we go We've actually got a letter in the mailbag here How about that? And uh, I do want to thank everyone for, uh, for listening to the first episode here It performed a lot better than I expected it to And we're only, we're only about halfway through the day here And it's, uh, it's performing quite well I know it has a number one on it Which, if uh, Marvel and DC have taught us anything Number ones, they get the hits <laughs> But uh, I do want to thank everyone for at least trying out This uh, new, uh, you know, side-direction while I wait for my current yearbooks to arrive to uh, continue the main X-Lapsed program here I hope, uh, and I hope you'll stick around as well I think this is going to be a lot of fun moving forward here But let's dip into the mailbag We got a letter from our friend Jesse He's talking about X-Men number one Hey, he says, uh, good afternoon Chris, I hope your back is doing better And yes, it is, it is It took about a week and a half, but uh, I can now twist I'm okay <laughs> and, I'm uh, trying to be a little less, um, a little more ginger in my movements and uh, not as uh, exaggerated in my squats and my torques and stuff like that. So fingers crossed it'll, uh, it'll remain. And uh, I'm actually sleeping through the night now, not, not waking up with uh, spasms. So that's, a, that's also a good thing. Jesse continues, I was wondering what you were going to do now that you're no longer lapsed. And the options that you listed on the recent episode were the same I would have guessed you would have gone with. I first would have guessed that the Rosenberg Uncanny Era, including the Age of X-Men, but then why not go back and start with the Color Era? But you went a step beyond and decided to start from the very beginning. That is brave and bold, even though that's the wrong publisher. <laughs> yes, um, you know, like I said in the first episode, I didn't know where to go. I am still, you know, we're, I'm not hoxpox Pox lapsed, but I'm still overall X-Lapsed here. I'm still missing a lot of uh information, you know. The the Color Run, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about that. Um, the uh post extermination X Force, I don't know anything about that. The Rosenberg Uncanny, I don't know anything about that. I have read a couple of issues of Age of X Men for uh for what was going to be a Patreon exclusive that I just never got around to doing. But I have read a little bit of it and I, I thought it was it was okay. It wasn't uh didn't rock my socks necessarily, but it didn't make me Mad either, so that's uh, that's a good thing But uh, I've long been looking for a reason To revisit some of these old Stories here, I had my essential Volumes staring at me, and it's like, you know I'd love to just dig into those And uh, and just, you know re- Relive these, you know, relive a little Bit of history here, and um, Just never got around to it, so I figured Yeah, why not, why not We have, we have an opening right now, and uh, If it works, it works, if it doesn't Hey, I mean, we can always skip over to the to the Rosenberg run. We can jump to the color run. I mean, there are no rules here, which is a is a good thing, I suppose. And I make uh, like no illusions that I intend to ever, you know, cover all six hundred and forty five issues of Uncanny. I mean, that's something we might do, but I'm not gonna say <laughs> out front that that's exactly what we're gonna do because I mean that's a lot and <laughs> that's a long, long time. Uh, Jesse continues. A few letters ago I ended my writing with saying that the 60s X-Men comics put me to sleep. The whole story is that in 2020 I made a New Year's resolution to read an issue of Uncanny X-Men a day starting from the beginning. I just finished issue 20 so you see how that went. Yeah, that's a Yeah, it's not quite daily, is it? Um this is actually going to motivate me to want to keep up with my reading so that I can follow along. I've never gotten past maybe issue eight before, so this was my attempt to get past that point, and now I have. That's an awesome resolution here, and I I mean that. uh, I've mentioned my resolutions in the past, where every every New Year's Day I was going to start a blog before I actually did start a blog, and one of them was going to be you know an X Men blog where every single day I was going to read like just like you had it here, read a a different issue, uh, starting from the beginning and working my way up here, just to have you know. I don't know, just a project, right? Uh, just a project that I can do and I can contribute to the commentary community and work on building a resource. And, uh, yeah, that never happened. <laughs> I mean, here we are probably seven, eight years later, and I'm on issue two. So didn't get too far myself. Um, it is it is different. Uh, these issues are going to be different than the Claremont stuff. Uh, They are going to be different than the Lobdell stuff. They're going to be different than the Morrison stuff. These are going to be... not going to lie. Some days, this is going to be a slog. Some days, these stories are going to suck. (laughs) Some days, they're going to be a lot of fun. But, uh, I mean, in for a penny, in for a pound here. So, um, I just think it's awesome that you're going to be on this uh, journey with us here, Jesse. It really, really means a lot. And hopefully, we can... uh, we can help bolster each other up when the uh, when the going gets when the going gets dull because um, I mean we got Khazar stories in here we got the Savage Land I mean it's some days it's going to be a little bit uh, a little bit tougher than others. Jesse continues looking back on issue one I have a confession to make I'm not a huge fan of Kirby's art I never have been blasphemy right Lee's writing kind of shows here as what he wanted to be a novelist. There were so many word bubbles, and one night I even leaned over to my wife and showed her some of the pages in these early issues, and how there are more word bubbles on the page than art. It's like a mix between an info page and someone trying to draw a book. I know Kirby was a busy man, but the, and they were doing this the Marvel Method way, but wow, wordy. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> like I said earlier, um... We usually jump on Claremont's case about, like, it's like, dude, you know, wrap it up here. (laughs) Be concise here. But Lee is no slouch. He is no slouch. He covered Magneto in one of of the first panels that featured Magneto. He covered him in a word balloon because he just had words to say. And on Kirby, like I said, uh, I'm hot and cold on Kirby. There's some Kirby stuff I really, really like. Uh, His Mr. Miracle is uh, really cool to look at. A lot of his uh, fourth world stuff is cool to look at. Uh, it's a little less cool to read. <laughs> I've never really been a huge fan of the fourth world stuff, but uh, it's nice to look at. Um, but I, you know, I, I came in in the early '90s here, so like the X-Men that I saw first were uh, like the Jim Lee stuff and the Adam or Adam or Andy Kubert, whichever one was doing a uh, volume two there right before Executioner's song. So I mean, I had a picture in my head of what the X-Men should look like. And then you go back to 1963 and Jack Kirby, and it is, it's it's not for everybody. It's certainly not for everybody. I, I I will never say that Kirby isn't an important figure, and in a lot of ways, he kind of, he's kind of the Rosetta Stone for the language of comics, right? He is kind of the the go-to. He is the patron of uh, of how comics are made in a lot of ways. But then, you know, looking at it, it isn't always what you want to be looking at here. Um, not that I would like anybody to go back and like redraw these issues, uh, but you know it's 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 uneven at times here. And like you said, Kirby's a busy guy. He's probably he's probably drawing a half dozen books at this time, and so there are little bits and pieces that are skimped on. I mean, we all jump on poor Rob Liefeld's case for skimping on backgrounds, but. Uh, well, there aren't very many backgrounds in this book um, These rooms are featureless voids As uh, I've said before And I probably will say a few times more um, Backgrounds are skimped on some of, the, uh, some of the pages where they're in costume I don't know if it's the black and white reproductions That I'm looking at But uh, kind of lacking in um, detail You know, it's kind of just like a, a blobby sort of uh, look And again, that might be unfair Because that might be the black and white reproductions But um, We'll be able to tell in a couple of episodes because I did just buy the facsimile edition of X-Men number 4 That'll introduce the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants So we'll be able to see that in all of its glory and see, uh, see how detailed it is And maybe, just maybe, we'll get a credit for whoever colored the damn thing Jesse continues Professor X is a jerk, you were right, and Kitty before Kate was right I love how Chuck times everything, and this will go on for a while I'm glad he doesn't do this anymore, like, say, Wolverine, you have 5.6 seconds to slice that ham. That whole love thing with Gene, though, creepy, and I'm glad it was decades before it was even brought up again. Slim, I mean Scott, I think is my favorite character in these earlier issues. He stands out slightly more than the others, even if standing out for him is standing back in the shadows where he can mope. I would love to check out Marvel's universe A to Z to see exactly what these characters' powers are, and if any of them carry over from this era. There are some weird things going on with powers and abilities, especially with Xavier and Magneto. Well, Scott's always been my favorite, too, even though uh, for a lot of the time that I've known him, he has been rather a mope. Um, And I've told, I think I've told this story before. Um, I had a friend in the fourth grade. This is before I knew what the X-Men were, who the X-Men were. And uh, our teacher was kind of a hippy-dippy type, who uh, every week we would have like circle time, right? And we would talk about what we learned this week, but not like school stuff, not academic stuff. This was like life lessons. You know, what did we, what did we learn? What, what did we, what, became, what made us more of a person this week? And uh, we would always sign off by saying what we wanted to be called the next week, as in name. Like, what name did you want to be called? So for me, it was always, you know, Chris. It didn't matter. I mean, that's my name. Call me Chris. You can call me Christopher. I don't care. Whatever you want. But I had a friend who wanted to be called Logan, and uh, I didn't know what a Logan was. I just thought it was a silly name. And uh, talking to him, I found out that Logan was Wolverine. And then he wanted us all to take X Men names. Like the following week during circle time, he's like, "Okay, we had." Uh, he wanted you know a bigger kid to be called Peter. He wanted he wanted uh, another kid to be called Kurt, and he wanted me to be Cyclops. He wanted me to be Scott. I didn't know what that was Because I was the I was the only kid in the class with glasses So I would make I was the only one Who could be Cyclops So I don't think I ever actually asked to be called that But um It always just stuck in my head As like okay I was the Cyclops guy <laughs> And uh And then when I started reading the X-Men And I I don't know if I identified so much with Scott But I mean I don't know It was just uh Just some silliness I suppose But uh Scott is always, you know, he's always my guy here. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually seeing him called Scott. I, don't, I think that's coming up soon. I would have to imagine because he's, he's only slim here. <laughs> he's only slim. But uh, the powers in as far as Xavier and Magneto are concerned, yeah, they are very weird. Um, I don't know that they figured it all out yet. And I don't think they figured out a lot of them here because, I mean, Gene... I mean, we know that she's eventually going to just have, like, all the powers, right? But here all we know is that she has her her teleport kinesis. Um, but when she's sidled alongside the Vanisher, she's like, I can tell you're a mutant. Well, how can she do that? I don't know. Professor X having to have, uh, you know, Fred Duncan wear a tiara to communicate to him. Um... It's it's weird stuff uh, And Magneto having to actually change his polarity Like, consciously change his polarity In order to attract or repel Interesting stuff, I mean And it stands to reason that Maybe he would have to do something like that But I just never thought that he would have to Consciously do it, and also That he would announce it Because, I mean, I don't know <laughs> It's just silliness, I suppose It's just uh, Stan Lee science, probably Now Jesse continues well, I look forward to hearing you read along with me, or re- or my reading along with you. I'm actually reading from the epic copies, although I also have the essentials. Those are where I read most of my post-giant-sized stories from. The epic books are awesome. I highly recommend them, though some of the older ones are pricey now, but they've started to go back and issue new printings of them. I saw that. I saw that here. It's uh, There are some wild prices for the uh, for the early epic collections, and it's like... Wow. I, I just hope that uh, that they do issue some new printings of some of these books here, because I would love to upgrade. I mean, as much love as I have for The Essentials, because I do. I have such a weakness for The Essentials. If I see an Essential volume in the wild anywhere and I don't own it already, I snag it. Same with the sho- the Showcase Presents ones from DC. It, it's just too good a deal not to, and it's just... Like I said, it's a piece of history that you can actually... Hold in your hands and just experience And I mean you don't have to worry about it You know, getting getting dirty <laughs> You can actually flip through it And it's, I don't know I, just, I have a real weakness for those essentials But the epics I am coveting the, evi- the epics right now They look really, really pretty So maybe one of these days I will begin my upgrading um, process there Now Jesse wraps up with Well until Magneto teaches a cursive writing class Make fine X laps I tell you, Magneto had some nice penmanship, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, using uh, bits of bits of metallic dust there to sign his name—like, that was really, really, uh, really pretty writing there. He should—he should look into teaching that class here. But uh, I want to thank you so much for writing in, Jesse. It really, really means a lot to me, and I- I'm so happy that you're going to be on this journey with us. So I really, really appreciate it. But uh, that is where we'll leave for today. If uh, anybody out there would like to write in and be part of the mailbag, please, I beg of you, <laughs> reach out. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram as 90 Men, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at infinitearts.com You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90 Men, where we talk about... Well, not just the 90s X-Men, all sorts of X-Men stuff. So uh, if you want to do that, that's where you do it. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, which is available anywhere you find noise on the Internet. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, please feel free to share the show, spread the word. It would really, really mean a lot to me. Speaking of which, it really means a lot to me that you would join me today and share a little bit of your time with me. And so I would like to thank you all so, so much. And uh, until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to The Essential X-Lapsed, Episode 3. Where, believe it or not, we're going to be talking about the third issue of the X-Men here. So, uh, let's get right into it here. This is X-Men number 3. Had a January 1964 cover date, so we're already into the second year here. How about that? Stories called Beware of the Blob. Written and edited by Stan Lee. Pencils, Jack Kirby. Inks, Paul Reinman, Colors by... Someone... Letters, already simec cover price, 12 pennies. And, uh, well, we open with another training session, of course. Um, and you know, it's funny, I'd totally forgotten that they actually treated this place like a training facility, and, uh, not just a base of operations during these early issues. Now here, we have Hank firing bags full of sawdust at his male teammates for them to dodge, destroy, or catch via their extra powers. When the dust, well, sawdust, settles, Professor X observes that Scott, who was actually called Scott here for the first time, he looks kinda down. When asked why, Cyclops blames his dour mood on his dread optic blast powers. You see, he's in constant fear and worry that he won't be able to control his awesome abilities and uh, may harm the people closest to him. Now, Jean tries to give him a pep talk. Actually, she basically just tells him not to be that way. Which is a definite sign of love, isn't it? Then, off to the side, Iceman reminds us that he is just 16 years old by busting a sawdust bag that Beast had been juggling with his feet, which leaves poor Hank covered in the stuff, and poor dude just happens to be very allergic. So, then Angel comes to his aid, bowling Bobby over with another bag of dust. Bobby responds by coating Angel's wings in slush. Again. Cyclops then blasts the feather sickles off an of angel. Again. Next, it's Jean's turn to train, and her exercise is a little bit different than the fellows. Um, and you see, she has to guide an object through various shaped and sized practice forms on a modified coat rack, or maybe it's a modified spinner rack. I don't know. She's able to use her powers quite deftly, and uh, suggests that the professor is taking it easy on her. To which the uh, bipolar baldy yells, "Silence!" because he's detected yet another mutant. We watch as he sends a thought probe throughout the city. Which city? It don't matter. He tells his charges to get into their street clothes and head out to look for this new character. Angel hopes that it's another swell gal like Genie, and I tell you, boy, is he going to be disappointed. We check in with the fellas as they get into their civvies, and uh, they all want to be paired with Gene for this little outing. All but Cyclops, that is. You see, he cannot dare get close to another person because he possesses a most dread power. In the study, Xavier is telling Jean that she must be careful because this new mutant may be dangerous. Jean tells him, eh, don't worry about it, and and she reveals that she plans to have Scott by her side the whole time. Here, um, well, things get a bit icky. Professor X thinks to himself that he can't help but to worry about Jean because... She's the one that he loves. Um, But alas, this is a love that cannot be. You may be thinking that might have to do with the great age difference between them, the fact that Gene might not be legal age yet, but no. The reasons that Xavier gives are that A, he's the leader of the X-Men, and B, he's confined to a wheelchair. Okay. Okay. I tell you, I don't remember this attraction being quite this blatant <laughs> I, I guess I just skimmed over it the first time Now I think it'll be a very long time before this gets revisited uh, Probably uh, decades, hopefully decades um, Now also, it's a good thing that Jean's telepathy hasn't yet kicked in Otherwise she'd uh, probably and hopefully be pretty skeeved out right now Anyway, Jean wants to go with Scott But Warren has other plans He swoops in, picks up Jean as though he's Donkey Kong, and then whisks her away to his convertible and drives away. Hank and Bobby, perhaps the slowest runners east of the Mississippi, walk after him protesting. Hank refers to Warren as the, quote, glamour boy of their group. Which, I mean, yeah, probably. That's probably true. I I just am tickled at the fact that they actually called him that. So, lickety-split, we're in the city to seek out this new mutant. First, we follow Hank, and he witnesses someone who appears to be burning a piece of paper with just his hands. Turns out, upon closer inspection, that this fella is just doing that old trick where you would, like, hold a magnifying glass up to, like, burn ants. And it makes me wonder if this was originally going to be ants and not paper, but maybe they thought about uh, a less violent (laughs) and extreme uh, trick for this fella to play here. Uh, Next, Hank sees a man hovering in the air by a nearby skyscraper. And so he takes off his shoes and runs up the side of the building to get a closer look. And I tell you, this is a really cool use of uh, Hank's power here. It's too bad they didn't really do more with it. Because the whole gimmick here is that he's able to use the cracks between the bricks to jam his ape-like toes into and, and climb with them. Anyway, toward the top of the building, he discovers that it's just a man setting up an advertising display while standing on a slat of glass. So, not a flying man at all. Next, we shift somewhere else in the city, and we check in with Cyclops. He's at a nearby carnival. He watches as a carny performs a trickshot exhibition and assumes that this fella might be the new mutant. Nope, it's just a con man. Cyclops melts this guy's gun just to be a jerk. Then he sees the Blob. Professor X sees through Scott's cursed eyes and proclaims that the Blob is this new mutant. Cyclops watches the Blob's exhibition, and a half-dozen volunteers from the crowd attempt to move him. Uh, Not Scott, that's the Blob, of course, and uh, they cannot because the Blob is immovable. This doesn't really impress Scott all that much. He figures that maybe the Blob is just a big fat guy. You know, maybe he's just too heavy to be moved. Then, a cowboy named Tex, because of course he is, shows up to pump the Blob full of lead. He unloads his rifle into the Blob's belly, and uh, it doesn't even leave a mark. Someone in the crowd cries foul, suggesting that old Tex was just shooting blanks. Don't tell his wife that. Then, the Blob expands his chest, expelling the shells from his blubber, proving that he is, indeed, impenetrable. After the show, Cyclops heads over to the Blob's trailer, where he attempts to recruit him into the X-Men. Upon hearing this, old Fred Dukes immediately mocks the X-Men for their geeky costumes, because, of course, we need at least one costume insult every issue. Cyclops claims to be a representative for the team And he informs the Blob that uh, They're not going to take no for an answer Isn't that just kidnapping then? Uh, Well, Blob tells Slim to beat it Then Warren and Gene show up to try to convince the Blob And, uh, well, old Dukes takes one look at Gene And decides he'll go anywhere she goes He grabs her by the arm while Angel just kind of stands there Scott, however, delivers an optic blast to the Blob's back Which actually knocks him over so, uh, we're giving up on the immovable gimmick already, aren't we? From here, Blob pulls a burning piece of firewood out of a nearby stove and extinguishes the flame with his fist, just to prove that he can. And I tell you, I'm sure Genie was very, very impressed. He decides that, you know what, I will go back with you and visit with the X-Men. And so, we shift scenes back to... I'm assuming the Danger Room, where the Blob's immovability is being put to the test. He passes with flying colors and really, really impresses the prof. Now, Blob gets pretty cocky about this, and so Iceman asks if he can conduct a test of his own. I guess Bobby forgot he's only 16. After the professor gives the thumbs up, Iceman encases the Blob's foot in a block of ice, to which Dukes wriggles his big toe and shatters the cube. The professor uses this opportunity to invite the Blob to join the X-Men. The Blob says he don't need no stinking X-Men. To which, get this, Xavier tells him that uh, he cannot be allowed to leave the mansion because he knows the X-Men's secret identities and base of operations. Uh, Maybe you should have thought of that before, Chuck. Xavier commands the X-Men to attack the Blob so that he can wipe those memories from his mind. And so, the next couple of pages see the X-Men try and do just that, unsuccessfully. Man, I ask you, why can't all evil mutants be weak and easy to beat like Magneto, huh? Now, the Blob winds up escaping, and he makes his way toward a manhole. He then heads down into the sewer, where he can travel the rest of the way back to the city. The X-Men lick their wounds while the Professor kicks himself, figuratively speaking, for assuming that the Blob would jump at the opportunity to join the team. The teens are going to have to find a way to bring the Blob back to the school so Xavier can do the old mind wipe, is uh, kind of the direction we're headed here. So back at the carnival, Fred returns and he enters his boss's trailer. He informs the guy that uh, he is homo superior, and from this point on, he'll be the one giving the orders. Before we know it, the Blob is holding court among the carnies. He tells him he knows all the secrets of the X-Men, and together, they're going to attack them. Just then, Warren flies overhead and is shot at by several of the carnies. He reports everything he just heard back to the professor. Now, Xavier expected the Blob to talk, and so he's hard at work putting together an electronic mass influencer. Now, this is a machine set to optimize his mind-wipe abilities to erase the memories of not only the Blob, but the entire mob of Carnies. He asks Warren to inform the rest of the team that Blob and the Carnies, which is a pretty good name for a band, they're on their way. Angel heads into Beast's room, where it looks like Stan and Jack decided that Hank was going to be the smart one on the team, because he's uh, currently working on some calculus problems and is wearing glasses. Uh, He's also now using some really big words to really hammer the point home. He then heads to the kitchen, where Bobby looks to be making a milkshake out of his own slush. I know we've seen this plenty of times, but um, it never fails to skeeve me out. I mean, it's not actually ice cream or anything of the sort. It's just stuff that his body causes to be I ain't here to kink shame, nobody, but this is kind of gross Anyway, a giraffe then sticks its head into the window So uh, we might assume that the kitchen is on the second floor then And uh, the giraffe then takes a big old bite out of Bobby's me-shake See, uh, now it has a taste for Iceman, this cannot end well Outside the window, Bobby sees that the carnies have arrived Some mooks attempt to battering ram their way in, but Gene just opens a door before they can smash it. They wind up running right into Cyclops' optic blast, and that sends them flying backwards. Elsewhere, some tightrope walkers attempt to make their way into an upstairs window by climbing a very convenient podium that appears to have been erected in Xavier's front lawn and throwing a grapple over to the building. The beast jumps on this makeshift tightrope, throwing the geeks off their balance. He then dodges a bit of gunfire before coming face-to-face with the Blob. Blob ain't in much of a mood for a fight right now, and so uh, he sticks an actual gorilla on Hank, so we're going to have the beast fighting a beast. Elsewhere again, some cowboys try lassoing Warren, and he deftly dodges since, uh, I mean, that is his entire training repertoire is uh, dodging things, but he is taken down by a pair of human cannonballs. Just then, an elephant comes charging right at the famous Cyclops. A carny on elephant back actually calls him the famous Cyclops. Anyway, Cyclops blasts Babar into the ground, so I guess elephant burgers are on the menu tonight. Unfortunately, the power of this concussive blast was a little too much, and so Scott passes out, and then he's captured in a net. Bobby is then attacked by a couple of carnies wearing parkas, which... Evidently protects them from, you know, completely from his cold powers Uh, Gene is elsewhere surrounded by uh, mooks Now Xavier is watching this all play out while he tinkers with this influence device And the Blob is just about to celebrate his victory when Cyclops blasts his way free from that net He then blasts the ground below the Blob's feet, which knocks him down So, uh, wow, it's uh, Cyclops 2, Blob 0 at this point off to the side, Beast finishes beating up the gorilla, and then is attacked by a human pyramid. Hank bowls right through them, but winds up landing in the arms of the blob. The X-Men are now completely restrained. Um, they, they stuff Scott in a sack. Uh, Jean's blindfolded, Warren and Hank are tied up tight, and Bobby, he's tied up, and he stood below a tiny ring of fire. I mean, a ring of fire would be dangerous to any of the X-Men, right? Not not just the one made of snow and ice, right? Uh, whatever. <laughs> now, from here, Blob and the Carnies storm the mansion. Charles calls down to Jean to tell her that uh, you know what? It's not all bad here. She can get them out of this. And so she teleports kinetically, unties her blindfold, and then pulls a knife from the convenient knife thrower truck that some of the Carnies arrived in, and she cuts our heroes free. Back inside, the Blob has made it to Xavier's study. Although the floor looks like it's tiled in one panel, the very next panel shows that there's actually a great big rug in the room. Now, it's important because this rug is something that Jean uses her TK on to wrap many of the carnies up into. Cyclops then does his thing where he blasts the floor beneath the blob's feet, and the blob falls down and he's trapped. Nearby, Warren and Hank fight off more carnies and wind up taking them out with relative ease. From here, Professor X flips the switch on his device and... Mind wipes all the baddies The Blob has completely forgotten everything And he suggests that he and the Carnies get back to the circus before they get fired He doesn't bother to ask why he's in a school in Westchester Which, I tell you, is fairly convenient for allowing us to end this issue We wrap up by touting Professor X's vast mental abilities If not his poor judgment And we're out of here Next episode of the Essential x Labs will introduce us to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So, uh, all you WandaVision fans, that's uh, going to be a huge episode for us here on the show, isn't it? Well, uh, well, that's a talk for next time. Now, let's talk about issue number three here. Um, okay, uh, I gotta ask here. Uh, another mind wipe? <laughs> I mean, it's three issues. Two of them have ended in a mind wipe. Um, does Xavier even need the X-Men? Part of me feels like he's only keeping them around as like a cheering section And for him to, uh, well, kind of perv on Which uh, brings us to uh, another big takeaway from this issue It's only one panel, right? It's only one panel, one thought balloon Where Professor X talks about his uh, love for Jean Grey Who, I don't know what her age is here I'm assuming she's somewhere between 16 and 18 Um, Two of those numbers make this illegal one of those numbers just makes it creepy So I, uh, huh I'm glad this uh, kind of gets back Bernard for a very long time I don't know that it comes back until Very, very late Uh Like, I want to say somewhere in the 90s Somebody remembered that this was a uh, thing So they brought it, uh, or at least mentioned it I, It might have happened during Onslaught I can't remember, it's been a long, long time since I read that But just a, uh, an unfortunate Bit of business here, we can Maybe we'll pretend that it That thought balloon was attached To someone else, I don't know Uh, Now, the main takeaway here I mean, the creepiness is funny The mind wipe, yeah, I mean that is what it is And I think it's not the last we're going to see of mind wipes But the main takeaway For this issue is that It's starting to feel like X-Men Personalities are starting to take shape here Um, Scott gets his Actual first name you know he's no longer just Slim Summers. He's Scott Summers. And I mean, he's overwhelmed by worry and responsibility over his mutant power. I mean, this is the angsty Scott that that we know and uh, either love or tolerate. So it's, you know, he's coming into he's coming into form here. Gene seems to be smitten with Scott, which uh, is right in my wheelhouse. i've uh, I've talked a few times about my very favorite uncanny X-Men issue or one of my very favorites. Uh, Uncanny X-Men number 308 Where uh, Scott, uh, where Gene actually Proposes to Scott over Thanksgiving And we get a flashback To the Silver Age And uh, we find out that these feelings were You know, they were there pretty much from the start So it's nice to actually see that Here, like in practice, in the actual Early issues here and not Just in a flashback, so I really dug that uh, Angel, he's The uh, good looking rich kid, he's got a sports car You know, um, that's I guess we can call that characterization, right? A beast. He's insanely brainy. You know, which wasn't the impression I think any of us would have had in reading the first two issues. So, he's becoming, you know, the more erudite and uh, well-read Henry McCoy that uh, we all know now. uh, Except he's not an evil, mad scientist like he is today. So, I think I would say this is the first issue where we're reading the X-Men and it feels... Like the X Men that we know now, right? They're not just ciphers. They're not just uh, they're not just people in costumes. These are, you know, the personalities that we all know these days. So it's nice to see that um, the the Blob fight. Um, I don't remember if I said this in the previous episode, but um, the these early X Men stories are a little formulaic. I mean, a new threat is identified. The X Men confront this threat. They lose. Then they have to do it again. And uh, you flip a coin whether or not they're going to beat the bad guy or Professor X is going to mind-wipe them, because that's <laughs> the direction that these things go. But um, overall, I had a really good time with this. I mean, it's Silver Age silliness, but sometimes that's exactly what the doctor ordered here. So having a really good time, and I hope you are as well. But uh, that's all I got to say about the third issue of X-Men. But we do have some mail, so let's hop into it here. We got a letter from our friend, Professor Allen. He says, I'm glad you came up with a plan to keep the daily show going, even when you have a delivery delay or when you finally get caught up to current day. Daily episodes is an impressive accomplishment. You should be proud of yourself. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, um, usually when people say something like that, I'll revert to my self-depreciation and be like, Oh, no, I'm just crazy. You know, it's insanity that leads me to do this. But, um... It's I mean, there's a little bit of that in there, but um, these shows were never meant to be daily. You know, uh, X-Lapsed, the main x Lapse show, is never going to be a daily show. It's just that it takes a whole lot for me to actually start something. You know, um, to hit record or to open up a new blog post. It takes a lot for me to actually commit to doing such a thing. So by the time I'm actually committed and ready to do it, I'm just so welled up with excitement and passion for whatever project it is that I just can't hold myself back. So when X-Lapse number one hit, I figured it was going to be a weekly show, 12 episodes long, just looking at House of X and Powers of X, and that was just going to be it. I finished the first issue, did the episode, and was like, I don't want to wait. And I read the second issue, wrote the script, and I was like okay I, I recorded it and I I set it ahead I scheduled it for a week later and then I wanted to read the third issue and uh, the fourth and the fifth and so I changed my schedule I pulled it like okay screw it I'm dropping it tomorrow and then I'll, if I if I do the next one the third day and then the fourth day it'll that's just the way it'll be and by the time I was able to actually catch my breath we had a we had a daily show and at the end of the day you know it is something that I'm proud of here because it's a uh, a sign of uh, stick-to-itiveness, and uh, that's, not one of my <laughs> that's not one of my better traits here, my stick I've got piles and piles and drawers and drawers and notebooks and notebooks full of things that I started and never finished So it's nice to, uh, we're not finished yet, but it's nice to have this streak going, so thank you so much uh, Alan continues, I enjoyed the first two essential episodes and I look forward to more I've never been a regular reader of the X-Men, although I have read some of these original stories, and they are very, very strange. <laughs> Take care and keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much, Alan. Uh, and yes, they are they are very, very strange, as uh, <laughs> evidence today with the uh, the creepy commentary from the professor and, uh, well, just all the Silver Age silliness. But thank you so, so much for writing it, Alan. It really, really means a lot. Next, we got a note from uh, Doc Strange, Billy, our pal. He says, Hey, Chris, love the coverage for the old-school X-Men. I really enjoyed the first two episodes and hope you continue for a long time. Looking back at some of the content, it doesn't hold up well. And even the better Roy Thomas-Neil Adams material couldn't stop cancellation eventually. But what we got afterwards made the wait, made it worth the wait for me. I'd love to hear you talk about the reboot in 1975 and forward. Cheers. And, well, that's the plan. We will get there eventually. Uh, I think this is our... Uh, this is our... There's a, there's a principle in psychology, um, behavioral uh, modification known as the premac principle. And it's uh, something that you could use in, in a lot of your walks of life here. Um, I used it personally uh, for curbing evening snacking uh, as I'm working on my diet here. The premac principle says that you do when you have something you want, you make yourself do something less desirable before you get there, right? So if I were to decide that, you know, it's 9 o'clock at night and I want, I want a handful of Oreos, it's like, okay, well, I can have those Oreos, but first got to run a mile. And it's like, well, I don't want to run a mile, so I'm not going to have those Oreos tonight. Or if I do really want them, I'm going to force myself to exercise, to work up my metabolism, to hopefully burn off some of those Oreos, right? Here, I mean, I can't wait to talk about the Claremont stuff, but we got to get there. So our pre-Mac principle here is that we're going to do something that I think we're going to have fun with the first 66, and I haven't decided if we're going to go from 66 into Burns' hidden years or not. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll, we'll talk about it more as we get closer and closer. But um, this is our uh, this is paying our dues before we get to the uh, you know to the promised land of the Claremont era. So. I think it's going to be fun either way. It's just uh, some of these issues will be will be a slog, but we will, uh, as always, endeavor to make the best of it. But thank you so much for writing it, Billy, and thank you so much for listening. Finally, I got a short note from uh, my moratory brother-in-arms here, Chris Bailey. He says, Dude, Essential X-Lapsed is excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you so much here. Um As always, every time I start a new project I always kind of preface Sometimes in my own head, sometimes out loud That uh, I don't know if it's going to work You know, and I worry And I worry about everything I I worry that I'm doing I mean, these are I mean, they're not the greatest stories But they are seminal stories They're foundational stories Not only for the X-Men But for the greater Marvel Universe, right? And I always worry that I can't do them The service that they require I I feel like I... uh, I don't have the ability as an orator or an analyst to uh, give them exactly the treatment they need, so I always worry. So, But so far, I haven't, uh, haven't heard a bad word yet, so that's really, really cool, and um, I'm actually quite happy with uh, their performance so far. So I want to thank everybody so much for being a part of this with me, and uh, I think this is going to be a fun way to... To get us between months in the, uh, the greater X lapsed universe here, uh, in between shipments. So, thank you all so much. Um, I should probably do plugs and let you all get on with the rest of your day. So, if you'd like to write in be part of the show, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. Instagram at 90sXmen, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrissoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90sXmen. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic listening needs, you can head over to Reggie.podbean.com available anywhere the internet provides noise and sound. And if you dig what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to share the show. Spread the word. Word of mouth is is a good thing. So uh, that would really, really mean a lot to me. Speaking of which, it really means a lot to me that you'd spend a little bit of your day with me today talking about silly old Silver Age comics. So thank you all so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Welcome to episode 4 of the Essential X-Lapsed Which means, uh, we're up to date on the regular X-Lapsed books The current year stuff, uh, we're kind of up to date, I should say It's just another instance of, uh, my, uh, Discount Comic Book Services folks Uh, taking their sweet time getting me the, uh, the May 2021 books here So, we're gonna close out this week with a trio of, uh, Essential X-Lapsed episodes Of course, that is, uh So long as I don't get struck by lightning, a bus, or a train in the interim. But uh, today we're taking a look at X-Men number four. Now this one's kind of special because... uh, Well, I mean, it's special for a lot of reasons here, but we're not actually reading this one from the essential uh, Uncanny X-Men volume one. Uh, I'm actually using a... uh, what are they called? A replica or a a facsimile edition, I believe it's what it's called there, where they basically remake the entire book, ads and all, which... I really, really like. I like that idea. I remember when uh, Marvel and DC both announced it. I was kind of, uh, you know, eh, you know. But I tell you what, they're, uh, they're really cool to, uh, to have. Um, I've only got, you know, a couple of them. I do have uh, New Mutants number 98, because uh, I'm an idiot who passed up the opportunity to get that book for like 10 bucks a few years ago. Because I thought, nah, I'll find it in a dollar bin. Because I mean I found some crazy crazy stuff in a dollar bin, so buying the first appearance of Deadpool for ten bucks felt like a uh, felt like I was cheating, uh, cheating on my uh, you know quarter bin roots, uh, and I've kicked myself basically every day since then. So I do have the replica edition of New Mutants ninety eight. I also have this one here, X Men number four not the first uh, replica book i bought though the first replica book i did buy was a replica version of action comics number one i found that in a uh, a 50 cent or a quarter bin um at a local record store and i want to say that it came from like uh one of those loot boxes or loot crates or whatever they're whatever they're called those things that you know you get like a Like a swath of, uh, you know, comic culture stuff. You'll get a Funko Pop, a keychain, a lanyard, stuff like that. And I found that, uh, and I mean, this is me anecdotal, of course. You find a lot of the comics that are bundled with them in the 50-cent bins, because I think the people who buy those things really don't care about the comic. (laughs) They just want the little trinket they can put on their shelf, or the thing they can wear around their neck and, and make it look like they, uh, They care about comic books. Um, Of course, that's not an all-inclusive statement, not a blanket statement, but uh, it's uh, just something I've found from my experience digging in the bins. And, you know, I actually uh, did a long-form review on that issue of Action Comics number 1, which, boy, if you've never read Action Comics number 1, well, you're uh, not missing a whole heck of a lot. Of course, there is that whole, you know, first appearance of Superman, first appearance of Lois, stuff like that. You know, important things, but... uh, there's also like a dozen uh, stories that are really, really boring in that book. Um, I actually did that book as a part of a uh, project I was working on over at Chris's On Infinite Earths. Uh, and I, I, I would imagine a lot of the folks listening to this, or at least some of the folks listening to this, might not know about uh, what Chris's On Infinite Earths was. And it was a, uh, and it still is a site, of course, but. It started off as a uh, DC Comics site, DC Comics review site, every single day reviewing a different DC Comic. And uh, around the time that Action Comics number 1000 was coming out, I decided to do a little project wherein I did reviews of 100 issues of Action Comics. I did the Action Comics 100 with the final review hitting on April 18th, 2018, the 80th anniversary of Action Comics number 1 and also the day that Action Comics 1000 came out. And the book I chose for that was this replica version of Action Comics number one. And I swear it took me eight hours to write this thing. (laughs) There were like six billion pages in this thing, and it was so, so dry. So if anybody wants to see that review, um, it's at chrisesoninfiniteearths.com. You'll be able to find it there. And I think at this point, I'm close to... Probably closer to 200 Action Comics reviews there than 100 Because we did do the whole Action Comics Weekly thing Spent, boy, uh, almost the entirety of 2019 Reviewing every single story Good, bad, ugly, and different of uh, Action Comics Weekly It was a a fun little project Uh, Not entirely uh, rewarding (laughs) But uh, I guess it was personally rewarding Uh, It's just that at the end of the day I was the only one that cared But uh, that pretty much sums up most of the things that I do. Anyway, I just took the scenic route to say this X-Men issue was a, a replica or facsimile version. <laughs> so, let's get into it here. X-Men number four, March 1964, cover date. is called The Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Written and edited by Stan Lee with pencils by Jack Kirby. Inks, Paul Reinman. Letters, Art, Symec. Colors, well, wouldn't you like to know? I know I would like to know, but... Uh, Whoever it is didn't get a credit um, Cover price, 12 cents Now, uh, this is this one has a fairly iconic cover And we could talk about the coloring errors on it But uh, I think that's well-trodden at this point So we uh, we won't Let's just get into it Now, you'll never, ever in a million years Be able to guess what sort of scene our story opens with Now, you might be saying to yourself, Chris, you handsome devil, of course we know that this issue will be starting with four or so pages of the X-Men training in the Danger Room, just like every other issue. And if you did say that, um, well, yeah, disregard what I said just a little bit ago, and I'm sorry for doubting you. First up, it's Beast, and he does that thing where he acrobatically dodges obstacles and more or less bounces around. Everything looks to be going great for old Henry here Until he goes to grab for something that he thinks is a rope Turns out that it was just a, uh, camouflage strip of paper Um, okay, I guess we'll allow it Um, Now, whatever the case, Hank drops into the pool, which ends his session Cyclops commends him on surviving for a full 60 seconds Though Hank is still a bit down on himself for getting cocky and careless Next up, it's Bobby who, despite the fact that he's only 16 years old, also manages to do decently well going through his paces. Uh, It's certainly a bit dicier than Hank's outing. First, we see Bobby manifest an ice slide here, perhaps for the first time. Here's the thing, though. It's a little bit different. He's literally sliding on it as he goes, like on his butt, like he's going down an actual slide. I think that's a neat touch that I didn't even realize was a thing. Usually we see him there standing, you know, and gliding along. Now, his ice slide gets shattered by a... uh, Kerbox Which is to say a box of Kirby stuffs drawn by Jack Kirby that looks very kirby He is then dropped on a red-hot cauldron Which looks like a giant pot of chili With a fan on top of it Now Bobby manages to create an ice rod With which he pole vaults himself out of danger Beast then throws a 75-pound anvil At our boy, which I mean, first of all, 75-pound anvil? Is that even worth an anvil? That's not very heavy at all uh, maybe I'm just used to seeing the coyote have like one ton anvils dropped on him. I don't know anyway. Bobby is able to react quickly enough to create another ice slide which catches the anvil and then ships it around his back and slips it right back Hank's way. Just when it looks like Bobby's aced his outing, he is sprayed with hot steam. Now, this renders him back in his tidy whities or I guess tidy yellows. So I can actually tell the color here because, as mentioned seven hundred times, I'm looking at the facsimile edition. Warren then swoops in to hang Bobby from a piece of Kirby stuffs high up on the wall. I guess maybe we can consider this payback for all of uh, Bobby's training shenanigans over the past few issues, or maybe Warren's just kind of an ass. Uh, Whatever the case, this allows Jean to flex her mental muscle and slowly and gently lower Bobby to the ground using her telekinesis. Now The professor is quite proud of her for doing so, despite the fact that we've seen her do far more impressive things to this point. Xavier then asks Jean to focus her TK abilities to unlid a large red box that has probably been sitting out for the entire duration of this training session. Inside the box is a large cake, which for some reason has 28 candles on it. Charles tells the team that this is their one-year anniversary. So it's been a whole in-story year since X-Men number one. Um, I tell you, the sliding timescale works in mysterious ways, doesn't it? Anyway, they all sit down and stuff their faces on this cake that has been sitting out for quite a while. Now, Scott slices the cake using his optic beams. Bobby still hasn't put a shirt on, and uh, poor Hank must be watching his figure because he's not shown eating any of it. From here, we shift scenes to another crowded table full of mutant—well, a pair of mutants, and a pair of folks we long thought were mutants. This is the first appearance of Quicksilver. The Pretender, Toad, and Mastermind Now Toad is acting a slob, stuffing his face with what looks like clumps of candle wax And, uh, well, there is a candle in the middle of this table, and it is quite a thing to look at Uh, It's like no other candle I've ever seen It kind of just looks like a flaming lump Um, Kirby must have been tired, Uh, he was drawing 7,000 books at this point I will give the Brotherhood a bit of credit, though. Uh, You know, little touches like eating by candlelight, that adds quite a bit of romance to the proceedings, does it not? I mean, A for effort. Anyway, Pietro tells Toad to show a bit of decorum because his sister is present. Mastermind then decides to make Toad look like a pig, since, well, he's eating like one, I guess. Uh, Toad brushes this all off uh, because he knows that Mastermind is just an illusionist. Wanda demands that Mastermind stop because she finds his tricks to be even worse than Toad's table manners. Um, the point we're trying to get across here is that this crew doesn't get along. Okay, you see, that's, that's the gimmick here. Mastermind decides to praise Wanda's moxie and tells her that uh, well, he wouldn't mind mating with her. She then points at him, which causes a pitcher of water to spill everywhere because uh, Hex powers in action, of course. And this is probably where I should point out that the scene didn't age well. But I won't, because that would basically be all I would be doing here, because not much of this aged well, of course. Anyway, a soaked, lapped mastermind stands up and threatens to drive Wanda mad with an illusion, to which Quicksilver speeds over from, like, three feet away and punches Wingard in the mush. Well, we don't know he's Wingard yet, but I will be probably using those names interchangeably. Toad is just loving this. He wants everyone to fight. Now he also wants to be rid of the Maximoffs, so it'll only be he and Mastermind working for quote the leader, as in their leader, not you know Samuel Sterns. Uh, Our baddies then all stop to talk about the leader, who they don't actually name, despite the fact that the cover explicitly touts the return of the dreaded Magneto, and also how you know the very next panel shows him. Oh well, I mean, I mean, you got to build tension somehow, right? From here, we shift scenes over to the offices of a large naval shipping line, where a couple of office schlubs are preparing to auction off a retired freighter. A freighter that still has its cannons installed on it. Huh. I mean, you would think the first thing you might do with a freighter you're about to auction off is maybe, I don't know, disarm it. Anyway, Magneto enters the office like he does. He he seems to just, like, go into offices uh, so far. Uh, he informs the geeks that the freighter now belongs to him. Uh, why he would have to wait for a freighter to be retired, and why he didn't just steal one before now? I don't know. Uh, maybe Magneto didn't want to run into a whole lot of red tape. You, you, know how, uh, you know how these things go. Whatever the case, he wraps the fellows in a band of magnetic whoosie-what's-it and heads out to the dock to take the freighter. And he actually drives it back, rather than just magneting it there. Now here is a wild coinkydink for you. It's a sign that we are in a very, very small world here. Angel just so happens to be flying overhead on a, quote, routine long-range flight test, and he sees the freighter taking off at top speed. He swoops down to get a closer look and figures, eh, maybe it's just being piloted by remote control. Magneto, inside the freighter, hears Warren's flapping, but just figures it's a seagull. That's kind of cold. Uh, Warren then returns home to the mansion, where Professor X takes his vitals. Worth noting, when he arrives, it's just Charles and Jean in the room, with, uh, which, after the professor's confession last issue, is maybe a little bit off-putting, is it not? Uh, Angel tells Xavier about the weird freighter he saw, which gives the professor an ominous, ominous, ominous feeling. Let's shift back to the bad guys. Magneto has returned to his lonely, uncharted island in the Atlantic Ocean with his freighter. I gotta ask, is this the first appearance of Island M? Are we in the Bermuda Triangle? Is that considered to be the Atlantic Ocean, or the Caribbean, or Caribbean, or however you say that? Anyway, Toad is ecstatic to see it, and is also quick to rat out the others for their quarreling. Mastermind especially, even though he was just siding with him a minute ago. Oh well. Magneto calls for a team meeting in order to hash things out, but Pietro and Wanda want no part of it. They actually want no part of any of this anymore. Quicksilver informs Magneto that they are out of here. Magneto then reminds them how the witch owes him her life. This leads to a flashback, a brief flashback, of Wanda nearly burned for being a witch somewhere in Europe until Magneto swooped in to save her. Wanda confirms the story and agrees that she will stay put with Magneto long enough to pay him back. Pietro says he will not leave his sister's side, so I guess Mags has them both for the time being. Then we have our team meeting. Magneto informs the Brotherhood that they're going to test out their new toy in attempt to conquer an entire nation. And so we jump ahead just a few days where he's done exactly that. We've got Professor X reading a newspaper. It's uh, the Daily Record Bulletin. It's worth noting, not the Daily Bugle. And the headline reads, Tiny Republic of Santa Marco Shelled by Mystery Naval Craft. He calls out a mental red alert to call the X-Men to order. We see Hank doing smart guy stuff, you know, reading. He's got like a chalkboard in front of him with uh, mathematical equations on it. That's kind of what he does. Uh, Jean is listening to a Dazzler record or something, judging by her dance moves. All right, she's probably doing aerobics. Warren is listening to a boombox. And Bobby is eating a giant milkshake, which, judging from last issue, he likely made from his own body. We don't see Scott, probably because Kirby ran out of panels. We join up with our team, Scott and all, in full costume in Professor X's study, and the prof is conked out. Bobby assumes that he's sleeping. (laughs) You know, right after you call a red alert, the next thing you ought to do is probably take a nap, right? Uh, You know, to be 16 years old and so naive. uh... Now, Beast suggests that the prof is in a trance. Cyclops gets a closer look and realizes that Charles is talking in his trance. Turns out that Xavier is on the astral plane, or the mental plane as it's called here, And he's having a chat with Magneto, which is kind of interesting, I guess. Uh, Worth noting, perhaps, uh, Xavier is depicted as standing in the astral plane. Might be the first time we ever saw him, you know, upright. Now, he and Magneto have their first debate on what it means to be a mutant here. Magneto wants to destroy and enslave humanity. Xavier wants to save it. Nothing we don't already know, but it's neat to see it for the first time here. Xavier wakes up and he prepares the team for a trip down south. Our scene shifts to Santa Marco, where Mastermind has masterminded a large army of soldiers. They march through the city, informing the Santomarcans that uh, Magneto is their new ruler. And, well, just like that, he is. And I tell you what, this uh, four-panel scene would take at least eight issues to play out these days, wouldn't it? We jump ahead, quote, a short time. By now, Magneto is firmly in power, and the illusionary army has been replaced with a real one. The evil army all wear M armbands, which uh you know, soldiers wearing armbands might evoke a certain evil army in the real world, uh and one that we wouldn't think Magneto would want to emulate. Anyway. A Rolls-Royce uh rolls up to the border of Santa Marco. That's a long drive, isn't it? Uh it's the X-Men, of course, in their civvies. Uh Xavier introduces them to the guards as his students who are on a goodwill visit from America which is apparently something Magneto is cool with. It's kind of odd. Um, he feels like this will make him appear to be a kindler and fairer ruler, so, okay, fair play. Meanwhile, he's having a dissident tossed into the dungeon. The classics are classics for a reason. No, I mean, the dungeon. That's, uh, hmm. Then Magneto gets a uh, weird look on his face, kind of like his lunch might not have agreed with him or something. Uh, he senses the X-Men. Which, I mean, we know he doesn't have any mental powers, but uh, I suppose we'll allow it, and this isn't the last that we're going to hear about Magneto having some sort of weird mental abilities. Um, We shift over to the X-Men, who look to be staying at, I don't know, a Holiday Inn or something. Xavier draws a picture of Magneto's castle, which is basically just a box with a name on it, uh, and he runs some plays with his students on how they're going to infiltrate and win the day. We start with Beast who approaches the castle and after climbing up a rampart takes out a pair of army men with a drop kick. He is then bumped off the wall by Toad who hits him kind of like a billiard ball. Hank manages to grip into the wall as uh, as not to go splat on the in the down below. Then Mastermind does his uh, illusion thing uh, making Hank believe that the wall is made out of smooth glass and so he slides all the way down probably really really rubbing his fingers and uh, maybe chest quite raw. Next, Angel uh, he flies by, drawing a bunch of gunfire from the M soldiers. He then flies up higher and yanks a high-tension electrical wire off the wall and drops it onto the baddies, very nearly electrocuting them. So much for uh, Kill No Human, eh? Eh, Different times, different eras. What are you going to do? Then Quicksilver rushes into the scene. Uh, Archangel baits old Pietro to running face-first into a wall. So uh, not the most impressive first outing for our speedster, is it? Scarlet Witch then wanders up and points to a support beam or something, causing it to fall on Warren. Next, we know he's been tied up. And, you know, when you think about old comics, you know, you might, like, immediately go to Wonder Woman, right? Because she was always bound up, she was always tied up, but I'm pretty sure the X-Men have been tied up in every issue so far. And, uh, if I were a betting man, and of course I'm not, I'd suggest that there's no end in sight for that. From here, enter Cyclops. He optic blasts into the room, or wherever Magneto and the gang are. He sends a pair of M soldiers literally ass over tea kettle, rolling backwards like they're in like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Pietro rushes behind Scott and locks him in a full Nelson. Now this causes Scott's beam to shoot through the ceiling, which drops a whole bunch of electrified Kerbatech to the floor below. Evil and good mutant alike rush away from the one million volts of current. Uh, Cyclops then does that thing where he exhausts himself, blasting the bejesus out of the Kirby tech, uh, sending it through a wall where it can't hurt anyone, and then he faints. Now, Iceman climbs inside, unties Angel, and then (sighs) smothers Scott's face in snow. It's a very, very strange-looking scene here. It's uh, kind of the Iceman version of smelling salts, I guess. In any event, this uh, manages to wake Cyclops up. Now, as they run down a hall, they're suddenly attacked by a coat of arms that had been hanging on the wall. So, like a shield and some weaponry, stuff like that. Now, you might think this is Magneto. But it's not. It's just Jean thinking that the X-Men were the bad guys. And somehow, Angel knows this immediately. Jean's not alone either. Beast is with her, and so uh, the X-Men have been reunited here. Then, a wall of flame rushes towards them. And they run, down a hallway to a dead end. So it looks like it's curtains for our kids. But then, Professor X wheels through the flames, because, you see, it was just an illusion. Warren kicks himself for being hoodwinked by this trickery. We then rejoin the bad guys, and uh, Magneto has decided it's time to uh, retreat, you know? Which seems a little bit hasty, but what do I know? Now, before the Brotherhood leaves, however, he would like to plant a pair of bombs. One small one, and one nuke. Uh, Now, the small one is set to take out the X-Men in the castle, and then the nuke will wipe out the entirety of Santa Marco. It uh, sure escalated in a hurry, didn't it? Um, Now, back to the X-Men, who are rushing toward the tower chamber where Magneto is hiding out. Uh, Beast goes to lunge for the door. However, Professor X realizes that it's been booby-trapped with the smaller of the two bombs. And so he throws himself out of his wheelchair to take the brunt of the blast himself. You know, rather than just making everyone stop running with his mental powers Which, again, what do I know? Cyclops then blasts through the door And they see the Brotherhood escaping down a slide Or a trash chute or something Uh, Whatever it is, it looks like a lot of fun And I wish I had one built into my house Magneto warns that Santa Marco is about to be blowed up with the nuke Scarlet Witch feels very bad, very uneasy About the loss of innocent lives here But feels she has no choice in the matter Quicksilver runs back up into the tower where he disarms the nuke before leaving. He makes sure to tell the X-Men that he's not on their side, but he won't stand by to see an entire nation be blown off the planet. We wrap up with the X-Men huddled around Professor X. He tells them to leave him behind, forget about him even. Now you see, that bomb blast rendered his mental abilities deadened. His greatest weapon, his mind, is now a dud. He has no more powers. Will the X-Men ever be able to move on? Well, we'll find out next time. But for now, let's talk a little bit. I mean, there's not a whole lot to say about this issue, but uh, we should probably talk about it all the same. Starting with, uh, well, sweet, fanciful Moses. Do they fit a lot of story in here? I mean, they they really cram the gram into these, uh, these Silver Age stories. It feels like where we started today was several days ago. I mean, there's just so much story here Uh, Definitely a uh, pendulum swing from today's comics to yesterday's comics I I do wish we found that happy medium It seems uh, like the perfect amount of story and the perfect amount of decompression Is just uh, a bullseye that it's just kind of hard to hit here So what are our main takeaways, uh, other than the fact that this... uh, This took a long, long time to read, and a long, long time to write about. Um, This is the first appearance of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, of course. That is um, probably why there is a facsimile edition of this book. Uh, Probably has a lot to do with uh, The Pretender. This is her first appearance, of course, and uh, she is everyone's favorite comic book character at this point. So it stands to reason that uh, her first appearance would get the special facsimile treatment. Now, it's pretty cool that she and Quicksilver are... uh, They're kind of here out of obligation, right? I had forgotten that this was made, like, apparent even as far back as their very first appearance. It's like I said uh, when we started this little uh, side project, it's been, boy, uh, every bit of 20 years since I read these things for the first time and the last time. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, unclear whether or not there was any sort of moral ambiguity in the Maximoffs or if they were just, you know, full blown bad guys at the start here. It's cool to see that they weren't. It's cool to see that uh, they're here only out of obligation, or Wanda's only here out of obligation to Magneto for saving her in Europe, and Pietro is just, uh, you know, very protective of his sister, so he's not going to leave her alone with the rest of these goofballs. Now, speaking of the rest of the goofballs here, uh, Mastermind and Toad, they make their first appearances as well. And I guess, uh, what's-her-face, Astra is probably somewhere behind the scenes here. She'd been retconned into being a founding member of the Brotherhood, uh, though uh, we don't meet her for a very, very long time. But it's a it's a pretty decent little crew here. Uh, they, uh, You know, when they put together a team like this, you would figure that they would try to do, like, the opposite number of the X-Men, right? I mean, that's kind of just Silver Age 101, right? You have a, a superhero team, and the villain team is usually just, like, You have the really strong one who goes against the strong character You got the the flying one who goes against the flying one You got the magic one that goes against the magic one We don't really get that here Um, Of course there are some similarities here Toad can bounce around kind of like Beast does um, And uh, Mastermind has mental powers uh, Not exactly the same as what Jean does Or especially what she does back in this era with just the telekinesis but you know, there—I guess—there are enough similarities there to maybe you know draw a line of uh, comparison there. But uh, whatever the case, I like the fact that they're not just dark mirror versions of the X-Men. I, I think it's more creative this way. It's also a little bit more fun this way. You have goofier characters here, where you know you got Toad. You know, picking sides here. He's first. He hates the Maximoffs because he wants to. He wants to show that he's the most loyal to Magneto and figures that. Well, if the two of them are gone, it's just between him and Mastermind at that point. And then, as soon as Magneto shows up, he rats out Mastermind for being a jerk too. So, I like that. I like that. You know, Toad is basically a toady. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Other than that, we've got uh, Professor X uh, with his mental powers wiped out from the bomb blast, which. I don't see that lasting too terribly long. Uh, one thing I do remember from this era is that Professor X liked to screw with uh, the X-Men a lot. <laughs> like, in oddly playful ways, like testing them by tricking them into thinking he was, like, dead <laughs> or, or depowered. Or I think this is uh, the first time we're seeing that. Uh, so I don't think there's much to worry about in as far as Xavier miraculously getting his powers back. Uh, The art was fine It's Kirby, you like it or you don't So really not much more to harp on about that I've already talked a lot about My uh, hot and cold feelings on Kirby's work I won't bore you all with that again But uh, overall, I mean, this is an important issue Um, It's also just a a little bit of I hate to use the word slog But uh, I can't really think of another word to use This one feels like it takes forever to get through so unless you have, like, 45 minutes to sit in silence with this thing, <laughs> it might just be a toughie for you. But, uh, still seminal enough to recommend checking it out. Uh, very, very important issue. First appearance is uh, establishing an actual organized threat against the X-Men here. It's, a uh, you could do far worse. <laughs> but I think that's all I got to say about this issue. Uh, we do have a couple of letters in the mailbag that have been sitting for a little while now because I, uh, I want to keep the letters for this show Separate from the main show As this, you know, despite being like a sister series To the main show, is still very much Its own thing And I feel like uh, it might have There's definitely overlap in listeners But I I think between this And the rest of the projects I do This one might actually have its own you know, a uh, group of listeners So let's get into the mail We're going to start with our good friend Billy who's talking about X-Men number three He says, Brother Chris, another fun episode Creepy Xavier is only supplanted by Jerk Xavier And the Silver Age has the latter in spades Thanks for doing this show And for all your Herculean podcasting and blogging efforts Well, thank you so much Thank you so much I uh, do my best to to keep the content flowing As uh, as best <laughs> that I as I possibly can And yes, uh, Xavier here is a creep Uh, (laughs) That's something we talked about a lot during the third episode Is uh, Xavier thinking about his uh, love and adoration for a teenage Jean Grey Despite the fact that he's probably twice her age And uh, it puts us on something of a slippery slope discussion-wise, doesn't it? Um, You know, anytime we talk about anyone who has mental powers falling in love with someone else it, uh, I mean, it's creepier than not, right? Uh, a person who can enter and control minds Well, they could uh, make someone love them, right? They can, He can just as easily go into Jean's mind and be like Hey, <laughs> you cannot resist me And uh, at this point in her uh, training and maturation of her own powers uh, There's really not a whole lot she could do about it So I guess um, kudos to Xavier for not doing that <laughs> Kudos to Stan Lee for uh, Kind of brushing this one under the carpet and Not to come back until You know, Onslaught in 30 odd years But, uh, it's It's creepy, it's creepy for sure But uh, thank you so much for uh, For listening and for writing in, Billy It really, really means a lot Uh, Next, we got Jeremiah talking about the first Three issues of X-Men And he says, long time no right I hope you're well and that the move is going well Well, thank you so much, but, uh we're still in the middle of that move. Uh, we are in month six of the move, which is uh, pretty embarrassing. <laughs> it's kind of where we're at. Uh, Jeremiah continues. Now that I'm vaccinated and restrictions have eased a little, I've been in the car more, which means I'm actually listening to more podcasts. This past Sunday, I was out comic hunting and listened to all three episodes of The Essential X-Lapsed. They were so much fun. I, too, have a fondness for Ascent- for The Essentials and Showcase Volumes. They were a very affordable way to get those old comics that might otherwise be difficult to obtain. I'm looking at you, Marvel Masterworks. My brother actually gave me that Silver Surfer volume you mentioned as a Christmas gift a long time ago. Oh, that's awesome. The essentials are just so cool. (laughs) I've got such a soft spot for them. And I do remember, like, uh, the Marvel Masterworks and the DC Archives. Those were on shelves when I first got into comics, or maybe a couple years into my uh, my comic collecting career, and they're not very thick books. You know, that's one thing about the Masterworks and the Archives as well. They're not terribly thick. They're, uh, you know, like a decent size, of course, but nothing nothing huge. And you know you look at them and it's like ah you know I i I'll, I'll get spend twenty bucks on this and then you turn them around and they're like 50, 60, 70 bucks and uh, a pop right it's crazy the prices and for the longest time that was like your best bet for getting serialized collections of the Silver Age stuff here I mean we had books like uh, you know Marvel Origins and Sons of Origins but that would just be a single issue from a series not really like a whole. Contextually long run, right? Where you'd get, you know, eight or ten issues of You know, the first eight or ten issues of X-Men In the Masterworks edition But again, you're paying Fifty, sixty, seventy bucks for that I've collected a few of those In more recent times Because uh, I've been hanging out more At uh, used bookstores And uh, record stores that keep You know, a little trade collection Sometimes those will pop in there And sometimes they're cheap Other times... They're treated like they're gold, right? You go to a half-price books where you used to be able to find things for, you know, half-price, kind of part of the name. Uh, But the ones near me have turned into this weird sort of, like, boutique store where, like, they actually mark things as being out of print. And instead of a book being, say, 50 bucks like one of these, $50 cover price, it'll be 120 bucks because it's out of print. And it makes you wonder. It's like, then what the hell's the point of a half-price books? (laughs) It's, a uh, pretty ridiculous. Jeremiah continues, I enjoyed your look at the stories. Going back this far into the Silver Age can be difficult and tedious. Sure, the creators and the characters are all legendary now, but the comics at the time were all brand new. The characters had not been developed to the point where you could pluck one off the proverbial shelf and write a great comic with them. And you're right. You're right here. Uh, I think this issue in particular here, we... Like I mentioned, it's a, a seminally important one, right? We have the first appearances of uh, a lot of characters that have stood the test of time that are still relevant today. But boy, was it tedious, right? It's a, it's a you know, again, I hate using the word slog, but uh, sometimes it can be with these old silver rajus. Jeremiah continues. Due to the nature of the world-building being done, the fact that the comics were published on a bi-monthly or more basis, that they were specifically targeting eight-year-olds, and that every issue had to deliver enough exposition to make each issue enjoyable on its own, the stories have to be looked at through a certain lens, I think. And yes, you're right again. Uh, I I think I mentioned this early uh, in this run here, where it's like, Yeah, you know, Stan and Jack didn't think that some, you know, 40-year-old idiot was going to be dissecting these things in, you know, a half a century plus later. And uh, to do so is uh, probably a little bit of a disservice. But uh, looking at this from, I hate to use the word academic because I'm really not. It's just a, just seeing where things started, you know, just revisiting things and... Basically refreshing myself on this uh, on these Silver Age stories because it's just been way 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 too long for me uh, between reads here, huh? You know, over 20 years probably. Jeremiah continues. Generally, these are these very early issues I find to be boring and silly, but that doesn't mean that I think they should be ignored. Obviously, they are the foundation for everything we've enjoyed about comics for most of our lives. They're highly collectible. It's those reasons I buy facsimile editions. I pulled X-Men number one off my spinner rack on Sunday to read it after listening to your shows. It's fun to look back and examine these comics with a 21st century eye. I hope you keep this series up to fill in the gaps for the regular show. And yeah, that's totally uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this. Uh, I mentioned probably in the first episode that I used to be able to... You know, talk about the X-Men Kind of chapter and verse, right? I was able to cite things I just knew all this information Like at hand, you know Or off the top of my head And I've lost it <laughs> i lost the ability to do so So I like I like having the ability to do that Even if it means that I'm going to be like Seeing things where, where they aren't In the current year stuff Like I'm going to probably think That Fred Duncan is there Despite the fact that I don't think we've seen him in 45 years <laughs> But uh, I, I just like getting... Getting and sharing the context here I know that a lot of people agree with you That these issues are boring I'm one of those people who agree with you These issues can be boring And they definitely can be silly And I totally agree that they shouldn't be ignored So I like having this opportunity In between our regular shows To, you know, just dig into them Share them with folks that maybe never tried them before Share them with folks who really don't have any interest In actually going back and trying them Because they are a little bit of a slog (laughs) But, uh I don't know. I think this is going to be a a fun a fun little venture for us. Jeremiah closes with one question. Why the heck does Iceman have boots on and why are they not covered in snow like the rest of his clothes? He's not naked under there, I hope. Well, we saw that he's in his uh, tidy yellows today. <laughs> we did see he's not nude, but his boots came off like as soon as he as soon as he like de-iced. It was very strange. I don't know I don't know what the boot deal is here. Maybe like he ices up and then puts the boots on? I don't know. Maybe we'll see him doing it. Maybe we'll get an explanation. Maybe it's a... Maybe we won't. I don't know. (laughs) Jeremiah says, Take care and I'll be listening. P.S. I've been enjoying Generation X lapsed too. I'm looking forward to seeing how it wraps up and what your overall opinion will be. I never got into Generation X personally. At the time, I felt like New Mutants redo with weird characters, but that was just me projecting. Well, you weren't too far off (laughs) It kinda was I loved it, I loved it Um, The the first run, of course, I'm talking Uh, The current run, we have one episode left uh, If you're listening to this in real time Uh, This weekend we'll be hitting up Generation X issue 87 Which is the final issue of the post-Marvel Legacy run And it'll be episode 12 of Generation X Lapse The final episode So it's not long before we find out Just how it all wraps up here I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to being able to check it off the list here. Uh, and for a book that started off really, really unpleasant, it uh, it turned out to be something that I uh, that I enjoyed more than I thought I would. And I think uh, I'm probably gonna miss it a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, reading the first two issues of uh, Generation X Volume Two, I was just like, "Boy, I, you know, what was that? Uh, where it's a close-up on." In Arrested Development, there'd be like a close-up on, like, Job's face, and he's like, I made a terrible mistake. That that was basically my face after recording the first episode of uh, Generation X Lapsed. If there was a camera in my room, it would have zoomed in on me, and it would have been like, I made a terrible mistake. I got 11 more of these to do. But uh, around the halfway point, uh, the worm turned for me. I started to uh, get into the characters a bit, uh, really getting into the uh, interpersonal stuff, and overall i think it's a uh, net positive which i never thought i would say but thank you so much for listening to uh, to generation x lapsed of course and uh, the show as well it really really means a lot but that's where we're going to leave it for today if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me please feel free to do so you could find me on twitter at ace comics On Instagram at 90sXmen. You can send an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Now, for all the blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrissoninfiniteearths.com. That's also where you'll find all that action comics stuff if you're uh, interested in seeing uh, some of my thoughts on uh, the DC side of the table. You can head over to 90sXmen on Facebook. That's our little group. We're having a lot of fun discussions there, including... Me complaining a lot about uh, spoilers on uh, social media. That's a conversation we're having right this very minute. And uh, if you're interested in taking part, I hope to see you there. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear there, at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to spread the word and share the show and uh, tell a friend or two and ask them to do the same. It would really really helped the show out and really mean the world to me. Now, with all that said, I'd like to thank you all so much for letting me be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 5 of The Essential X-Lapsed. where uh... uh, The allergies are getting me again. We're having some weird weather here in, uh, lovely Arizona. It's, uh, very, very hot one day, and then it's, uh... Well, it's still hot, but not quite as hot the next day. We are fluctuating, like, 20, 25 degrees a day here. It's very, very strange. Uh, I attribute it all to the fact that, uh for the first summer ever we have a pool and uh so it can't stay all that hot right it's got to get cold to make sure that uh we don't get to use it nearly as much as we might want to and uh the thing you got to know about me is uh my skin is so white that it's just about see through so um the pool is a uh, late in the day uh, event for me it has to be when the sun isn't you know right on top of me so i don't uh, just Burn to ashes and uh, blow away in the breeze. So, In the evening, it's a little cooler, and uh, it's been quite a pain. Uh, the allergies are just a cherry on that sundae. But enough about all that. We got a uh, comic to get to here, and uh, this is another one where Stan the Man is at his Dickensian best here. It's almost as though he's getting paid by the word. A lot, a lot of words in this issue. This is X-Men number five. Had a May 1964 cover date. The story's called Trapped. One X-Man Written and edited by Stan Lee With pencils by Jack Kirby Inks Paul Reinman Letters S. Rosen Colors Wouldn't you like to know? I know I would If you do know Please let me know And then I can uh, give them proper credit Cover price Twelve cents American Alrighty So we open Pretty much right where we left off last issue Uh, The X-Men are bringing the injured And now depowered Professor X back home to the mansion Now They seem to vacillate between Xavier being just depowered and in almost a vegetative state uh, throughout this issue. It's very, very weird. Anyway, upon arrival, Bobby realizes that he's got the key to the school, but he would have to defrost in order to get it, which just seems like really poor planning to me. Thankfully, they have the master key in the uh, form of a narrow optic blast through a keyhole, which not only unlocks the thing, but blows the door wide open. Inside, Gene gently and carefully lifts Xavier out of his chair and lowers him into his bed uh, Probably a dream that he's had many, many, many nights Again, now, you wouldn't know if he's awake, asleep, comatose Or even if we're going as far as to being in a weekend at Bernie sort of situation here it's, You just don't know Anyway, the strangest teenagers ever lament the fact that, from this point on, they're on their own until Beast hears a car pulling up outside, which kind of shatters the, uh, the somber uh, mood. Now you might be asking, who could it be? Well, it's Jean Grey's parents, who, if the timeline established last issue is accurate, likely haven't seen their daughter in over a year. It's a good thing they're able to stop by for about five minutes. Now the kids scramble to get out of their gear and into their even less comfortable-looking civilian attire. And here is where we get a bit of a refresher on just who these kids are. Uh, We got Iceman, he defrosts, rendering himself back into, quote, plain Bobby Drake. Now, it looks like he's a big fan of the Marvels, uh, judging by the pennant in his bedroom. Reminded me that pennants were even a thing. You know, growing up, I had a ton of New York Mets pennants in my bedroom. I wonder if they are still something that uh, people buy and uh, hang up on their walls. I guess you'll have to tell me. the angel uh, straps his wings down to become the devil-may-care young blue-blood, Warren Worthington III. Beast puts his glasses on and reflects on how he's not actually a fan of the Beast identity, and he'd much rather just be some genius, you know. Scott, well, he puts on his ruby quartz shades and does that thing where he whinges a whole lot about the curse that is his powers. Which, I mean, he will probably be doing at least once per issue for, uh, well... A very long time Now Jean heads to the front door While waxing aloud about how her family Had been led to believe that Xavier's Is just some progressive private school And how they don't know about her Uncanny abilities or the true nature Of this place And she lets her folks in Now moments later the Greys are introduced to the rest of the crew Who they feel like they already know Due to Jean's correspondence I mean this is the early 1960s right? Yeah, you would think parents in the early 60s would feel, I don't know, maybe a little bit weird about their daughter being the lone girl shacked up with four teenage boys. But, uh, whatever, I guess. And I mean, that's not even accounting for the, uh, the perverted, uh, professor, but what are you gonna do? Now, Warren apologizes for the professor's absence, claiming that he's been unavoidably detained. Jean's mother takes a weird sidebar to chat up Scott about his strange red shades, and she even goes to pull them off his face to get a better look. Which, I mean, Cyclops does not take that all that well. Uh, he shouts at her not to touch him before collecting himself a bit uh, in order to explain that he's just got an eye infection, and uh, he's sure she understands. The Greys then go on a tour of the facility, including stepping into the danger room. Now, Hank explains that their new gym equipment hasn't yet been delivered to explain away why, uh, there's this giant empty room in the middle of a mansion. The tour then heads out of the danger room, but the door shuts before Scott can exit the room. This triggers the auto-start program, and, uh, so whether we want it or not, we're going to be getting a training scene right now. Now, here's the thing. The danger room is set to run the Beast scenario, but... It's Cyclops who's here, and so we get a page of Cyclops bouncing around the Danger Room like beast until the time runs out. Now he's mostly successful, but has to resort to blasting a bunch of stuff that wasn't meant to be blasted. Eh, oh well, what are you gonna do? At this point, it's time for the Grays to leave. Uh, you know, I mean, they're happy to see their daughter doing so well, and uh, they figure maybe they'll see her in another year or two. They are disappointed that they didn't get any face time with Xavier. Now Jean's mom, she finds him to be quite the charming man. Jean's dad's like, yeah, he's charming, but he's also a lot more than that. He, it's, it makes you wonder if they'd even mind if they knew that he was like pervin around their little girl. Uh, they might, they might welcome that. I don't know. Now as they leave, they drive by a peculiar-looking fellow who we recognize as being Mastermind from Magneto's Brotherhood. Now he's been tasked with finding the X-Men secret headquarters. And oddly enough, out of all the neighborhoods on this entire planet, he's somehow walking around Salem Center. And here's an even stranger part than that, he doesn't even know that the X-Men are nearby, he's just there. Very odd. Magneto then calls him on his Apple Watch to call him back to base. Quicksilver soon arrives on one of Magneto's silent magnetic jets. Then after picking up Wingard, they're off to Asteroid M. Upon arrival and docking, Mastermind is tackled by the Toad, who excitedly wants to know if he'd destroyed the X-Men. Quicksilver starts running quickly and balls the Toad over. Mastermind then hits him with the illusion that he's been wrapped up in heavy cloth. Oh boy, heavy cloth, that's pretty hardcore, isn't it? Magneto enters and demands order. Toad then goes on full, goes into like full-on lackey mode. He tells Magneto that he's the only member of this crew who's really and truly loyal to him. We learn here that Magneto and the Brotherhood have spent the past several weeks trying to track down the X-Men. So, it took the X-Men several weeks to get back from Santa Marco? I really thought we were picking up where we left off. I mean, they were just getting home with, uh, with the De-Powered professor. I mean, maybe this is just another indictment on why you, uh, you probably should never edit your own work, folks. Uh, you get problems like this. Now, in any event, Magneto claims to have a new plan to draw the X-Men out, and it's going to involve his most loyal subject, the Toad. We jump back to the mansion, where the kids are getting ready to watch a great track meet on TV. Wow, pretty big day, huh? Bobby asks Scott to join them in the den, or wherever the television is, but Psyche ain't feeling it. So much so that he shoots an optic blast at Bobby, It winds up hitting his bedroom door, and rather than blasting through it, it just causes it to slam shut. So, I mean, are the optic blasts a blessing or a curse at this stage? Who knows? Anyway, down to the TV room, Gene is wrapping a blanket around the legs of a seemingly catatonic Xavier. I think he's just enjoying the attention Gene's giving him. Um, Hopefully not too much. Um, Anyway. The track meet begins, and our heroes immediately take notice of one athlete in particular who stands out above the rest. I mean, this track star here is just kicking butt here. He's winning every event, breaking world records. I mean, it's pretty wild here. He's so impressive that the crowd... Revolts? I mean, you'd think they might be cheering, but no. They call this poor guy out as being a phony. Now, the X-Men take this to mean that the guy has got to be a fellow mutant, and also take the crowd's reaction as an indictment on how humans fear and hate them And so our heroes recall their oath And head out to save their brother in mutantdom Now Xavier wakes up at this point Just long enough to remind them that he's not going to be able to like help them with this one Since, you know, he's got no powers anymore Then, just like that, the X-Men arrive at the track meet Before the humans who were just brimming with fear and or hatred moments ago they're just about to dogpile the poor old to- uh, The brand new mutant track star here. Uh, Angel swoops in to take him away. Only this little fella is too heavy for him to carry for all that long. Beast jumps in to buy Warren some time to get the new mutant to the X-Mobile. Unfortunately for them, the X-Mobile is surrounded by humans, and so the X-Men are going to have to try and flee by foot rather than running them all over. Which, I mean, that would definitely give the humans something to fear and or hate. Now, the X-Men and the New Mutant run all the way to a subway station and hop aboard a train. Inside the train, the costumed kids are being stared at by all the folks there. Cyclops makes sure everyone there knows that they bought tickets, like, like they all did. Though we didn't actually see that, so I'm thinking he might just be lying here. Anyway, Beast takes a better look at their New Mutant friend and comments that there's something disturbingly familiar about him. Well, maybe it's the fact that he's wearing a big old rubber face mask. That might be enough to tip you off, right, Beast? Um, Beast rips the mask off the kid, revealing him as the Toad, of course. Duh. Cyclops, at this point, freaks the F out. He's scared that Beast literally ripped the face off their new friend. It's, um, it's quite a scene. Now, Toad bounces on out of the train at the next stop, which we're gonna have to assume wasn't all that far off. Otherwise, that would have been, uh, You know, quite the uncomfortable few minutes of just standing there staring at one another Uh, The X-Men follow him off the train here Iceman freezes the ground below the Toad, causing him to fall backwards and crack his head wide open So, uh, mission accomplished No, no, I'm kidding Um, Toad does fall, but he does so in more of like a Three Stooges sort of way Like spinning around like Curly on crack, you know Then Magneto shows up He yanks a bunch of train track up from the subway and wraps Angel up in it probably killing and or maiming hundreds of folks on the next train that comes by in the process. I mean, they are just homo sapiens here, who needs them anyway? Beast rushes in to save Warren, but Scarlet Witch uses her hex powers to cause some commuter's briefcase to open up, which spills out a bunch of stuff that trips Hank up. Iceman then finds himself surrounded by masterminds, and so he swipes at them with an icy baseball bat. Gene then deduces which Wingard is which, and TK lifts him away. Quicksilver locks Cyclops in a sort of double chicken wing maneuver here, while Scott has Toad in a full Nelson. So we're going full, you know, full-on three-way dance here. Cyclops blasts at Pietro's feet, which surprises the speedster, because he thought that Cyclops would need to use his hands to open his visor, and, uh, well, he doesn't. Uh, This might actually be the first time we see that he doesn't need to do that. Uh, Then again, maybe it's not. Magneto tosses Angel over his shoulder and rushes back to his magnetic jet. Mastermind causes a human stampede when he drops an illusionary rhinoceros amid the crowded train station, and this buys the baddies just enough time to get away. Then, a short time later, we see Angel held captive at Asteroid M. Now, Magneto is grilling him for information under the threat of, uh, well, killing him. Wanda is absolutely aghast. She never thought they'd descend to murder... Um, hey Wanda, weren't you there last issue when Magneto literally set a nuclear bomb to turn an entire country into glass? I, I mean, I think you were there. I mean, I had details, details. Magneto then begins to sort of kind of torture Warren to try and get the information out of him. He wants to know where the X-Men are hiding out. He nails him with a flashing light beam to ensure that he won't get a moment's peace until he talks. And then he starts blasting high-pitched sirens to really drive the point home. Our boy Warren, though, he ain't gonna talk. Back on Earth, the rest of the X-Men have captured Toad and are uh, wondering just what in the world to do with him. Then Toad starts to sleepwalk and then sleep talk. He mutters about how he must return to Magneto. And the X-Men just kind of follow him. Toad then rolls down his sock, revealing a communication device which he uses to summon a magnetic jet. And when it lands, the X-Men all load inside as well, and uh, bada-bing, bada-boom, they are shipped off to Asteroid M. Now, Toad exits the craft, much to Mastermind's surprise. Uh, This tells the X-Men that he wasn't just leading them into a trap, but uh, was actually just in a trance. Now, they're really edging on the idea that Magneto has some form of mental power here, and uh, this won't be the last time we see this. Now, B swoops in and dropkicks the Toad right into Mastermind. Wind God reacts by illusionally turning Hank's legs into dough. Cyclops reminds Hank that, hey, it ain't real, it's just an illusion. Uh, and, I mean, that doesn't much matter, though, because you know Beast knows that this is an illusion, but still can't move his legs, so I'm really glad that they addressed this. Mastermind then pulls a real gun out and starts shooting at the Beast. By now, thankfully, his legs are all better. Cyclops then blasts the pistol out of Mastermind's mitt. Then, Magneto puts on this weird tiara thing, Uh, he puts it on over his helmet, in order to amplify his mental control over metal. So he's basically going to turn the entire asteroid into a weapon. And just like that, a small piece of sheet metal falls right onto Cyclops' head and wraps around it tight. Then, a weird metal apparatus wraps itself around Jean, and uh, I'm sure the professor is very, very displeased that he wasn't there for that. Bobby and Hank are then attacked by a bunch of flame jets. Iceman gums up the works with his slush. He then freezes the apparatus on Gene, while Hank pries the bit of sheet metal off of Scott's dome. Magneto spies all this via a monitor and decides to just lock the X-Men in an area before blasting them out of the airlock. Now, Wanda is not cool with this, and so she hexes the control panel. Magneto steps to her threateningly, but Quicksilver rushes between them and tells Magneto that he will not be harming his sister. Now, before this argument can escalate much more, uh, Cyclops blasts his way into the control room. Here, this is something Cyclops seems to do. When Magneto's hiding behind a wall, you can count on Cyclops to blast his way in. He then asks Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch to leave Magneto and join the X-Men. Now, they refuse. They, you know, they don't want to be left out of the MCU movies that are going to come out in a half century, so, uh... Uh, Pietro and Scott then spend a couple of panels punching each other while Beast and Iceman attempt to free Warren from his glass cell. Gene then TKs a chemical tank into the glass, finally busting it open, but somehow not causing an explosion. So I guess it's all about that gentle touch, right? Anyway, it's, uh, it's time to fight. Mastermind unleashes an illusionary monster, which, uh, Angel flies right through. Magneto then fires a dart grenade down a hallway, which seems like a most dangerous thing to do, um, especially in the vacuum of space, right? Now, luckily, all 1,000 flying darts miss everybody and everything. It's uh, almost like we're in an episode of the A-Team. Maybe it's, a, it's the X-Team. Uh, then there's a rumbling because Asteroid M is cracking up. Magneto and the Brotherhood rush across the station to try to escape, and uh, as they're running, they see Cyclops and like, hey, let's throw him outside. <laughs> That's exactly what they do. They just chuck Cyclops into the vacuum of space. Don't worry, though. Cyclops' lungs somehow didn't implode here. Also, somehow, Magneto isn't sucked out into the void with him. It's just they open a door, and they throw Cyclops out. So science science is weird. Iceman then makes an ice bridge. Uh, should he be able to manifest... Ice in space? I don't know. I do hold a couple of science degrees, don't get me wrong, just not that kind of science degree. Angel flies down the bridge and catches Cyclops, without his lungs imploding either. Then asteroid M explodes. Nobody dies, though. Um, The X-Men just barely escape into one of the magnetic jets. Once back on solid ground, the jet returns to the ruins of the asteroid, presumably to collect Magneto and the Brotherhood. Assuming they aren't already dead, of course. I-, I mean, the asteroid is literally in pieces right now. Um. Anyway, uh, we wrap up with the X-Men reporting into Xavier, and as they're telling their story, he puts his hand up and says, Don't worry about it. I already know what happened, because he was faking the whole thing. He was never depowered. Oh, what a lovable scamp of a pervert. He was just playing with them here. He uh, informs his students that... Uh, in, in pulling off this mission, without his help, they've passed their final exam. And now, their training period is over. And that is where we leave it. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Uh, first of all, Xavier is a dick. Um, <laughs> I mean, this isn't the last time we're going to see him do anything like this. Uh, even in the first 66, he's just going to uh, continually screw with his students and his X-Men here. Um, I'm pretty sure a couple of the times were basically because uh, whoever was writing the story, either Stan, uh, Roy, or Arnold, or Gary, whoever whoever was writing the story, kind of wrote themselves into a corner and needed to uh, find a way out. So, But we'll get there when we get there. Here, it's uh, very strange that he would... Uh, that he would let his his students kind of tend to him hand and foot, you know? We have Gene tucking him in and uh, wrapping towels around him here. It's pretty bizarre that he would uh, go to such lengths here. But again, this is this is Xavier, and he is, uh, if nothing else, he is a strange, strange individual, and probably the last person you'd want as a uh, custodian of your, uh, of your young one. With that out of the way, I'd like to talk just a little bit about the pacing here. Um... I referred to X-Men number four as a seminal slog, which I stand by that. I feel like it's an important issue. It's just not a fun one to read, really. It's uh, very, very slow and just feels endless. Uh, It's something that we're actually talking about right now on the Facebook group. It's like, this thing feels like it took several days to read. (laughs) It's just a lot of stuff going on there. and uh, I mean, there's good and there's bad about that. You're getting plenty of story, but it's... uh, there are points where it almost feels like the story's being told in reverse. Like, as you turn the page, there's like five more pages. It's I, I could compare it to eating cauliflower. You know, I'm not a fan of cauliflower, but sometimes I'll try to eat it because it's, you know, good for you. At least that's what the wife tells me. And uh, I feel like every time you, t- you chew on cauliflower, it grows. You know, it doesn't break down in your mouth. It gets bigger in your mouth, and it just takes forever. And, I mean, you could be chewing on the same bit of cauliflower for, I don't know, a half hour. It seems like, anyway. This issue of X-Men, issue four, that is, it was kind of like that. Here in issue five, still a little bit of a slog, of course. I mean, it's still the same creative team. It's still the same trappings, still the same era. But I feel like it was paced a lot better. I feel like there was a lot more going on, um... We weren't forced so much into What we've come to learn over the past four issues As, like, the formula for an X-Men story here Where we start with, you know, several pages of training Then them all standing around Xavier While he tries to decide what they're gonna do Then he sends them to do it Then there's a fight, you know And that's sort of the standard format that we're getting Here, I feel like Stan and Jack kind of jazzed it up a little bit here We did get a, a training scene because, of course, we did But it was a... Uh, it was different. You know, we had Scott locked in the Danger Room, uh, going through Beast's paces. And I, I think that's an interesting and clever and uh, creative way to remind us that this is a school, remind us exactly what the Danger Room is, and not devote, you know, a, a quarter of the issue to it. You know, we, we got we got the point, right? We got the point of what the, uh, the Danger Room's all about. Now, using Gene's parents to introduce or remind readers exactly what the Danger Room is, and exactly who our characters are. I mean, we we do get the little scene of them changing into their civilian clothes, and we find out a little bit about them. Mm-hmm. I mean, surely we know all this stuff already, but, uh, you know, a kid in 1964 who may or may not have bought the issue before this, these are all new characters to them, and they're getting a little bit of information about them, and... Hell, even if you are a kid in 1964 and you did buy the previous issue, that could have been two, three, four months ago. I mean, these were bi-monthly, and, I mean, trying to find things on a uh, on a newsstand, you just don't know. So it could have been several months removed from the previous issue, and it's nice to get that refresher. And, I mean, that is something that uh, we comics enthusiasts kind of poke fun at every now and again. Uh, we're covering the, uh, the Marvel Epic Elf Quest books on Quester Days here, and we finish Moratory Mondays, and... We got those, uh, we call them the shooter specials, you know. You got those page, page and a half of everybody says their name and what their powers are and or what their story is to, to remind us that, you know, back in the day, every issue of a comic could possibly be someone's first. It's certainly not like current year. And the example that we always kind of give when we're joking about this is like, You know, an issue of X-Men opens, and it's like, here's Wolverine with his razor-sharp adamantium claws. It's, you gotta mention all that stuff, because, uh, you know, there are new readers out there. Or there are lapsed readers out there, or uh, maybe just plain forgetful readers out there. So I thought this was a creative way to do that without actually just uh, hitting us with, you know, expository narration boxes here. We actually see them... Having to get out of their costumes and into their uh, into their civilian clothes, here we get to see them out of costume. We get introduced to them here. We get uh, we get the Greys coming in to give us a nice little tour of the school. We also get reminded that the school is a you know a secret thing, right? Uh, the actual purpose of the school is a secret, even to the parents of the students. They just think it's a uh, what do they call it? A progressive private school that. That their child uh, won a scholarship to Which, I mean, the early 60s must have been just a more trusting and innocent time Because if that were like now, you'd be like Our, our kid is being sucked into a cult <laughs> And you probably would not want this Especially after visiting the place and realizing that uh, Your daughter is in a room with, uh, with four teenage boys and a, and a creepy bald man but anyway, what I'm trying to say here is that was a very good use of the Greys to kind of fill us in on backstory, right? It uh, it felt it felt expository, but it didn't feel like an exposition dump. It was good. I think it was a very good way to do this. Uh, we get to meet or revisit with our Brotherhood of Evil Mutants here, and it's it's mostly more the same, right? Toad is the ultimate lackey. Mastermind is kind of just there doing illusions. Um, And the Maximoffs are uh, morally conflicted, right? They don't want to be on the bad side At least Wanda doesn't want to be on the bad side But she knows that she owes Magneto her life here And, uh, and is intending to pay him back That really makes me wonder why they didn't just have them eventually join the X-Men It's, uh, they, I mean, they're not mutants anymore, of course But, uh, for, you know, 50 or so years, they were, right? So it's strange that, uh You know, they never actually joined the main X-Men team. Uh, Quicksilver, of course, spent some time as part of X-Factor, but uh, they've never been actual, you know, flagship X-Men members. It's very bizarre. Speaking of bizarre, uh, Magneto's mental powers. That is uh, kind of strange. He puts on that tiara to... I mean, it, it would have been easier just to say it just amplified his powers of magnetism, but they made sure to put that it was his mental control over, you know, metal, which is a bit bizarre. And uh, I will admit that I did read a little bit ahead. And uh this is only the start of Magneto's weird mental powers. So we're going to be uh we're going to be talking much more about that uh during the next episode. It's uh it's quite strange. It's quite strange the things that Magneto does here and uh we might be able to no prize it. We'll uh we'll just have to see uh next time here, but I do wonder if Magneto's mental abilities caused the Scarlet Witch to forget a few things, because it's almost like you can't stress it enough. Um, Right here, Wanda is, like, worried that they're going to kill an X-Man, right? Whereas last issue, um, Magneto was not only going to kill all of the X-Men with a small bomb, but he was also going to use a large nuclear bomb to destroy an entire country, and she didn't want that to happen, of course, but, uh, like... She still went along with it And here she's like, wait, 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 we can't kill a person I don't know, maybe uh, maybe she was mind-wiped, who knows I mean, mind-wipes do happen a lot in the Silver Age As uh, we will come to find out uh, very, very shortly But I think that's all I got to say here um, The art is the art It's Kirby, you like him, or you don't It's uh, the same as, it, uh, same as it always is Overall, still a very, very dense read But uh, far more breezy than Issue 4 was, and uh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> but I think that's all I got to say about it. If uh, you would like to write in and talk about, uh, well, anything you want to talk about, I am always around. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90s X Men. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory@gmail.com, at gmail.com, or you can call into the brand new, or sort of kind of new, um, X-Lapsed voicemail at six two three three nine six 396 jerk uh, you could find blog posts and show notes over at Chris's on com. You could check us out on Facebook. The little group is 90s X Men, and it's it uh, seems to be growing by the week. So thank you to everyone taking part there, and uh, thank you for sharing in the conversation. We're having a really, really good time there. Uh, finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head over to Chris and Reggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate that for behind it, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, and uh, maybe tell a friend or two who, uh, who might be into comics, might be into the X-Men, or might just want to hear uh, a couple of New Yorkers shoot the breeze about uh, comics and life. Uh, it would really, really, really mean a lot to me. Speaking of which, it means so much to me that you'd share a little bit of your day with me today to listen to my nonsense and uh, discussing X-Men number five. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 6 of The Essential x last where, uh, I guess if this was current year, this would be the end of our first storyline instead of, uh, you know, the end of our sixth. So, um, different times, different times, but, uh, I do hope that, uh, none of you are tired of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, because, uh, well, they're back. Or, I I guess we can't say they're back, because they never left. Uh, They're just gonna be here for a bit. Now today of course is X-Men number 6, dated July 1964 cover date, the story is called Submariner joins the evil mutants. Written and edited by Stan Lee with pencils by Jack Kirby. Got a new inker today, Chick Stone, letters S Rosen and uh, colors, Eh, probably somebody, I would imagine. Cover price 12 cents. Now we look at the cover and you know, it might not look Like, it's all that special, right? Uh, Especially looking back on it now, right? It's just uh, Namor the Submariner, he's there. Or as I used to call him as a kid, Namor the Submariner. Sorry, I'm, you know, I'm dumb. Uh, But we see him on the cover, and looking back on it now, it doesn't look like a big deal. But... This is actually the first sign that the X-Men are part of the shared Marvel Universe, right? That's, uh, that's pretty important. Namor has been showing up in other books here. And we're actually going to get some editorial footnotes to other books in this issue. So I think with this sixth issue, the X-Men are firmly planted as a part of the shared Marvel Universe, which pretty cool. Now, let's open this sucker up. We open with the X-Men gathered around a table-eating dinner. Now, we learned that the school chef had the day off, and so Jean had to pitch in to prepare the meal. Uh, I guess no comment? I don't know. I, I, I prepare all the meals at my house, so uh, it's, uh, maybe this didn't age well. Maybe it's just a sign of the times. Who knows? Anyway, the rest of the fellas seem to have uh, rather poor table manners. Uh, Beast is reading advanced math. One of my favorites. Uh, this is written by Simic. Uh, Which is probably a misspelled reference to Marvel's other letterer Now Beast reaches across the table to get, I think, some sugar? It's a little, you know, bowl of something Now Cyclops takes this as a tremendous lack of decorum And so he, uh, he blasts Hank's hand with an optic beam Um, isn't Scott, like, constantly whining about how powerful and horrifying his powers are? And he just uses them to blast poor Hank's hand Who's just reaching for some sugar Oh well Um, Now Bobby is about to chow down on a slice of pie Which he decides to make a la mode By using some of his own ice slag Which I mean, we, we really don't need to discuss the differences Between snow and vanilla ice cream, right? I mean, Bobby even goes so far as to refer to the goop That his body just produced as ice cream Come on, dude Uh, Now, before he could chomp down on the pie, however Gene TKs it away from his maw Instructing him that, uh, you know, use use a fork Don't be an animal Now, Warren takes this opportunity to hit us with a little bit of exposition He explains that mutants and Homo sapiens really aren't all that different Outside of, you know, having powers and all I mean, he has wings Gene then reminds us that Hey, you know what? Maybe there are a lot of mutants out there that, you know, we don't even know exist just yet and Xavier is pretty sure that this is, in fact, the case. Now, as he talks, he's reading the morning paper. We don't get to see the front page of it, so maybe we'll just assume that he's finally reading an edition of the Daily Bugle. I mean, we've established that the X Men are part of the Marvel Universe now, so we can play along. Anyway, there's an article in the paper that asks, Where's the Submariner? And Xavier wonders aloud if Prince Namor I might just be a mutant. Now, as if struck by a bolt of lightning, Xavier now knows the X-Men's next mission. They're to find Namor and make sure he doesn't join Magneto's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And just like that, we shift scenes to Magneto. And you'll never in a million, billion years guess what he's talking about. Anybody? He is, of course, instructing the Brotherhood that they must find and recruit the Submariner. Now, Toad comments on Namor's strength and wonders if he might just be a little bit too strong for Magneto to control, which gets a bellow of silence from our master of magnetism. Just then, the Brotherhood is attacked by Cyclops. What? Well, no, not really. We just get a page of the baddies fighting a masterminded illusion of Cyclops. Whoops. Uh, We do find out here that Quicksilver can outrun an illusional optic blast, though, so uh, there's that, I guess. Magneto zaps Mastermind with a magnetic power blast as he hobbles over to his recliner. He then plops himself down and does something I bet you didn't know Magneto could do. Because I didn't. (laughs) He astrally projects himself out of his body to try and seek out Namor. Uh, let's try to no-prize this. Maybe this is something we can assume Astra. Remember Astra? Who won't actually be created until 1999, but was retroactively added to the Brotherhood as a founding member. Maybe she's helping with this in her, uh... You know, behind the scenes, behind the curtain here. I mean, her name is Astra. I couldn't tell you what her powers are, but, I mean, from the name Astra, astral... it doesn't matter. Anyway, let's head back to Xavier's, where, uh... This might come as a complete and total shock, but the X-Men are training in the danger room. Thankfully, we do not have to sit through a half dozen pages of this today. Xavier leaves Scott in charge of the sesh, and uh, he goes over and conks out so he can astrally project himself to search for the Submariner. And we watch as his uh, astral projection walks into the ocean and deep to the bottom of the drink. There, he senses Magneto's evil presence and decides to uh, retreat for a bit. He's just going to let his adversary do the legwork for him here. And so we catch back up to Magneto's astral form, and he happens upon Namor's underwater kingdom. He pops his head into the throne room, or wherever, to discover that the Atlantean prince is throwing a major temper tantrum. You see, he's upset about his recent loss against the Fantastic Four and how Sue Storm just, uh, she doesn't love him. She doesn't return his affection. And uh, this right here marks the first time we get an editor's footnote pointing us to another Marvel mag. So, definitely, the X-Men are part of the shared universe here. Uh, for completion's sake, the footnote goes to Fantastic Four number 27. Now, Namor's having a fit, throwing stuff all over the place, and Magneto decides that he's far too heated at the moment to be approached about a working relationship, especially one that would see Namor in the subordinate role. He figures he'll just use one of the remaining Atlanteans to do his dirty work for him. Magneto approaches a weird mustachioed Atlantean to get this thing done. He commands the fishman to convince Namor that it's in his best interest to join Magneto's brotherhood, after which, this weirdo fishman can slide into Namor's Atlantean role as ruler of the Underwater Kingdom. And the fishman likes what the, uh, you know, the ghostly apparition of Magneto suggests, so uh, he's in. Let's go back to the mansion. Xavier tells the team that they're ready for their next mission. Now, it's worth noting here that Marvel Girl's look and costume has changed a little bit. Uh, she's now wearing the cat's eye mask rather than the head sock, and her hair has been straightened. The professor speaks of Magneto's lonely island, confirming that he's been able to deduce its location as being 50 miles south of Bermuda, so I guess this is Island M, then. Uh, You'll know it's Magneto's Island if you see it, because it has a, uh, well, like a three-story gigantic horseshoe magnet on it. I mean, he's not uh, not hiding who he is, I guess. And so, before we know it, the X-Men and the Prof have boarded the X-Galleon and are sailing to the Bermuda Triangle. Angel does some flying about to look for island Dam on the horizon, but can't see anything. Xavier suggests that uh, maybe Warren's eyesight isn't as keen as his brand new TV video camera, which is kind of a jerk thing to say. I'm pretty sure he's just bragging that he owns a TV camera back in 1964. And to which, uh, you know, I gotta say, I'm sure Jean is really impressed, Chuck. She is totally into you now. Anyway, Xavier has Gene TK the TV cam way up in the air to try to locate the nebulous island. But alas, it does not. So I think Charlie owes Warren an apology. Now, you want to hear something stupid? Mm -hmm. Um, Now, rather than just having Gene TK the TV cam back down, Xavier asks Beast to retrieve it from, like, way up in the air. And so Beast climbs the crow's nest and then swings out of it with a rope in his mouth to nab the thing. Only, I mean, we know that Beast doesn't have the best of luck with ropes You know, last time he grabbed a rope, it was actually camouflaged paper And so, just like that, it snaps Sending him careening toward the deck below Jean tries to slow his descent using some TK uh, But he's too heavy, even though I'm pretty sure she's moved Beast around before Uh, Bobby, thankfully, manifests a pile of snow Or maybe it's ice cream for uh, Hank to plop into After Hank lands, Cyclops lambastes him for nearly damaging the professor's super expensive and impressive TV camera. Warren heads over to Xavier to inquire about whether or not Magneto might be using a sort of mental screen to hide his island. Charles is quick to point out that there is no screen on this planet that he can't bust through, so, um Okay, dude, settle down. Settle down. Nobody's questioning your strength or your abilities. Just, uh, cool your jets. Meanwhile, back under the sea, Namor is approached by that fishman about joining up with Magneto's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and Namor brushes off this notion, until the fishman suggests that Namor himself might just be a mutant. To which Submarin is all, "You know what? Why didn't I think of that?" So uh, he is convinced in the span of a single panel that he's a mutant. How about that? Now we did take a look at when Namor was first hinted at being a uh, mutant Back when we did X-Lapsed Origins on uh, Tad Carter from uh, Amazing Fantasy number 14 A narrative caption that appeared in Fantastic Four Annual No. 1 Suggested that Namor was a mutant So this isn't the first time we're hearing it But it is still quite early And it uh, looks like Namor himself didn't even realize it Now the Submariner reflects on the last time he tried to team up And an editor's footnote points us to his brief association with the Hulk over in Avengers No. 3, so yet another sign of the shared universe. Though, you know, I do suppose that Namor being here at all is a sure sign of that as well. Anyway, Namor decides that he'll pitch in with Magneto, and so he heads to Island M in his sleek undersea racer. Upon arrival, Magneto is pleased as punch to see him, and he begins to speak. Until Namor hits him with a silence. So, a uh, heck of a role reversal for all mags here. Submariner then takes a walk around the island to ensure he didn't just walk into a trap. Magneto decides to have Wanda use her feminine wiles in order to lower Namor's defenses, which, uh, again, no comment, I guess. Whatever the case, Wanda appears to be quite taken with the Prince of Atlantis, and she goes to tap him on the shoulder. But, wouldn't you know it, she accidentally does her hex. Finger symbol, which causes a blast of high-voltage electricity to shoot out of a machine right in Namor's face. So, uh, Scarlet Witch, screwing crap up since 1964. Namor manages to grab the sparking wires with his bare hands, but this knocks him down to his knees. Wanda suggests that this sort of jolt would have killed a normal man. Wanda explains that her hex powers caused the charge. And it seems as though uh, Namor's already got the hot pants for her, or I guess the hot trunks... Mastermind and Toad are just not impressed by the Submariner He's just a guy in underwear, basically With little tiny wings on his feet Just then, Angel swoops in So we can assume that the X-Men have located Island Dem Magneto begins hurling some magnetized boulders at Warren Who is able to deftly dodge them Since, you know, his only Danger Room training scenario has to do with him dodging stuff So he better be good at it Namor then takes to the skies using his teeny, tiny, adorable little ankle wings to air-wrestle with our boy. And he just hurls poor Warren all the way back to the SS Xavier. And uh, we have Beast, he's bouncing on the plank. So, uh, Xavier's boat has a plank. Um, you know, growing up on cartoons, I remember thinking, like, walking the plank would would play a far bigger role in our everyday lives, but uh, I guess not. Anyway, Hank bounces on the plank... To get some air here And he manages to get high enough To catch the hurled angel Bobby then manifests an ice slide Which sends his bros whooshing back to the galleon And I gotta wonder Just how much this tremendous ice structure weighs And how it didn't just capsize the ship Eh, Maybe Marvel Girl was holding it up With a little bit of her TK Despite the fact that she couldn't hold Beast Five minutes ago Just then, Magneto's giant magnet comes alive Shattering the X-Men's boat to splinters Xavier nearly goes into the drink, but Hank catches him before he can splash down. And it's really funny seeing Xavier just, like, about to get into the water. It's, it's funny stuff. Now, Beast treads water to keep them afloat until Iceman can manifest an ice cream walkway for them to finish their approach to the island on foot. Now, upon arrival, the X-Men find the island barricaded by brambles. Xavier just tells the team to walk on through them because they're obviously a mastermind manipulation. And boy, wouldn't it be funny if they weren't. Uh, But actually, they were, of course. Cyclops then spies the giant magnet and goes to blast it. Before he can, however, he's attacked and full-nelsoned by Quicksilver. A shocked Scott comments that nobody could possibly move this quickly. Uh, Dude, you've literally fought Quicksilver in the last two issues. And you've literally been put in a full-nelson by Quicksilver in the last two issues. So, come on, man. Now, Magneto and company are inside a, I don't know, a fortified room of some sort. Uh, he begins to flip some switches to repower the giant magnet. Wanda pleads with him not to do so because her brother Pietro is still outside. Magneto shouts at her to stop her sniveling, which is all Namor has to hear in order to know that he threw in with the wrong bunch. Nobody, by God, speaks to a woman like that in his presence. Magneto takes great offense to this and decides to just wrap Namor up with all the metals. Unfortunately for him, this results in the X-Men infiltrating the fortified room, or wherever. And just like we've seen in the past two issues, Cyclops blasts through a wall that Magneto is hiding behind. It's kind of become a thing now. Mastermind then drops a fog illusion to cover the evil mutant's escape. Angel informs the team that, hey, this is only an illusion, it's not really here. To which Beast says, yeah, but it's fog. So, illusion or not, we still can't see through it, so maybe calm down. Iceman decides to... Blindly go Iceman at this point, perhaps the first time that he taps into his omega-level mutant power. You see, he manifests so much ice that it very nearly, literally, freezes Mastermind into immobility. He barely manages to escape outside before they can leave. However, Wanda proclaims that she refuses to leave her brother behind. Magneto's all, "Hey, it's your funeral!" Tuts, and he just basically boots her back inside. So now we're left with the X-Men versus the Scarlet Witch and the Submariner. Sort of uh, Wanda demands that they release her brother But the X-Men ain't exactly feeling it Namor then demands that they release her brother To which the X-Men decide to attack uh, It's not terribly effective uh, Beast kind of just hurls himself at Namor And bounces right off his chest And uh, then he punches him a bunch And it's kind of like that uh, that meme panel Of uh, Spider-Man punching Superman's uh, you know belly And it's just like not doing anything Angel then gets hurled Again, it's kind of what he does Uh, Namor then shrugs off the full brunt of a Cyclops optic blast. Wanda then hexes Cyclops into losing his balance, and it looks as though Namor is just about to go in for the kill when Xavier demands that he halt. He and Jean emerge from uh, wherever they were, and uh, they've got a catatonic Quicksilver with them. Now, Wanda is completely flummoxed at the sight of her beautiful brainwashed brother, Xavier informs the not-so-baddies that they've been used as pawns by Magneto. Namor, as you might imagine, takes great offense to such an assertion. The X-Men freak out a little bit, but Xavier assures them that Submariner isn't a murderer here. Uh, They've got nothing to worry about from him. He then releases Quicksilver from his mental slumber, warning that there will soon be a far bigger battle with Magneto. Now, by now, Namor is wishing he'd never even heard the word mutant and goes to walk back into the drink. Meanwhile, Magneto and the rest have arrived back at that giant magnet. So, uh, I mean, the island didn't look quite that big. I gotta wonder how big it is. He then fires the magnetic pulse at Namor, who, it turns out, is able to overwhelm it, sending shockwaves back landward, destroying that magnet. Magneto and company then rush for a magnet jet and skidoo. We hear that Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch will be rejoining the Brotherhood due to a uh, mental suggestion or command that Magneto had implanted in them. Another sign that Magneto has mental powers. And we close out with Jean saying that she's quite glad that the Scarlet Witch didn't wind up joining the X-Men because she's far too attractive. Girls, am I right? <clears throat> uh, well, that's where we leave it. So what did we all think of this one? Um, I gotta say, this was probably... The best paced out of the last three issues Uh, Issue four was just really, 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 really dense and long Um, Five was a little bit better But this one felt like it was, a, it flowed a bit better It wasn't, you know, I hate using the word chore I mean, especially since we're reading comic books here And comic book reading should never be a chore But, uh, this one felt like far less of a chore Than issues four and five did I think Namor is just a, a really fun character um, I, I like his sort of like ambiguity You don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy Sometimes he's bad, sometimes he's good He's always just written to be very uh, complex and fun He's a character that you either love to hate Or you uh, you hate that you love You know, it, He's just a real fun character And the fact that he's here, of course, is proof positive that you know, the X-Men, the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, the Avengers They all breathe the same air, right? They're all in the same universe Which is really, really cool That's one of the things that brought me to uh, to Marvel in the first place Just that feeling that there was this universe that everybody shared, right? It's part of the reason why it took me so long to get into things like pre-crisis DC Because the, you know, the infinite Earths really made me feel like... Uh, like nothing mattered, right? Because anything could be written away, anything could be explained away as being something on a different planet, different Earth, a different galaxy. It would give creators a lot more freedom and flexibility to tell stories that uh, you might not be able to do with the prime characters. Like you can you can kill Batman on Earth Two, you can marry uh, you know Lois and Clark on Earth Two, all those things that you you maybe might want to do. On Earth 1 or Earth Prime or Earth uh, Zero Whatever you're calling the main Earth But you can't, you know, upset the apple cart too much You could just put them on a different Earth That made it feel like things didn't matter to me Um, It was just like, it was basically like reading Marvel What Ifs Which I hate (laughs) I'm not a fan of the Marvel What Ifs Because so many of them feel the same, right? It's always like, how are we going to destroy the world this time? And it would always be like a benign thing And like the joke that I've heard people make is like, Peter Parker forgot to brush his teeth one day and the world ended. You know, it was very, very silly stuff here. So seeing this, you know, smaller Marvel Universe just in its seminal days here begin to take shape and form is really, really cool to see and will continue to be really cool to see build here. It's Again, the reason why when I started reading comics in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, that why I went to Marvel instead of DC, it made it feel like everything, everything kind of mattered, everything kind of informed everything else. You were reading a like a closed system here, and uh, it's really neat to see that that started for the X-Men right here. As for the tussle with the Brotherhood, it's uh, well, it's basically the same thing we've seen for the past three issues, isn't it? Uh, we've got Pietro and Wanda who are uh, Conflicted, of course They don't want to be bad people But they owe Magneto their lives So, uh, well, they're going to be bad, I guess Um, Same as it ever was for the past few issues here Magneto, of course, is Magneto And uh, Toad and Mastermind uh, They kind of slip into the X-Men wallpaper Sort of a role for this issue Which is fine, because uh, They're probably the least interesting At least at this point in time The story really is Magneto and, uh, And the Maximoffs Now, if we're judging from the uh, letters that Stan and Jack are getting around this time, uh, the fans of the day were quite taken with Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, and, uh, you know what, that's a pretty good segue, I think, into a segment that I want to include on this essential program. Uh, Actually, I would love to include it on all the programs if these were still things that happened. (laughs) They're not, unfortunately. uh, The letters pages here, um... I do want to start by thanking the folks at the uh, X-Lapsed Facebook group, 90s X-Men on Facebook, for their help tracking down these early letters pages here. Uh, Our good friend Ed Moore actually came through with the first uh, five or so letters pages that were printed in the pages of uh, X-Men here. Now, being a fan of a certain vintage, I do have quite a bit of love for uh, the old letters pages here. I miss them tremendously, even though... Yeah, they're kind of obsolete now, right? We just uh, really don't need them. And anytime they bring them back, it's uh, it's kind of like one of those too cute by half sort of things where they're trying to evoke that old school feel and it just comes across as having like no heart, right? It just feels like, a, like they, you know, well, you tried and it just doesn't really work so good. It reminds me of uh, the Marvel Legacy stuff. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the Marvel Legacy Generation X right now over on Generation X lapsed And it feels just so half-hearted. It's like, hmm, what do do old comic fans remember? Oh, how about silly house ads? How about letters pages? And then they put together this absolute half-hearted garbage to try to make it feel like you're reading an old comic. And it just doesn't work because it doesn't have that earnestness. It doesn't have that heart to it. But anyway, with with my complaining about the current year out of the way, let's hop into the letters pages here. We've got two pages to get to because... The letters started showing up in X-Men number 5 Which we discussed last episode But we will cover all those letters here And then we will hop into issue 6 Now, X-Men number 5 starts with a letter from Carl in Anchorage And he considers the blob story that took place in X-Men number 3 To be wonderful, stupendous, and fabulous He says that he was worried that the X-Men would be just like the Fantastic Four And he's glad that that's not the case Which, uh I'm guessing a lot of fans during the 80s and 90s had that very same sentiment. Though I guess, you know, Stan and Jack invite those uh, comparisons when they say that books like the X-Men and Avengers are in the, the Fantastic Four style, right? That does welcome the uh, the idea that, hey, they're going to be just like the others. Uh, next up, Marianne in Michigan wants to know how the X-Men got together in the first place. And so Stan writes about how Maura McTaggart died nine times and... Oh, no, that no, didn't happen yet uh, He really just promises that uh, it'll be revealed As soon as he figures it out Because he doesn't know yet eh, You know, I'll, I'll give him that for honesty, right? Uh, John in Pennsylvania takes issue With a letter that someone uh, wrote I'm guessing in a Fantastic Four letters page That opined that Beast is just a copy of the thing Now, Stan cites the Beast's heady vocabulary As the difference between he and Benji Grimm I think I might have started with You know, one of them's a giant rock monster? Orange rock monster? I don't know. Uh, Jim in Indiana. He loved how each of the X-Men started to get their own unique characterizations in Issue 3, which is something we did talk about on the show here. We started to see Beast as a brainy guy, uh, Warren kind of being conceited and stuck up, uh, Jean being the girl, uh, Cyclops being tortured, and Bobby being, you know, the 16-year-old. So... And that might sound like I'm making fun of it or talking down about it, but no, no, this is true. They actually started getting their own personalities there. They're not just, you know, faceless characters in these identical, almost identical costumes. It's It, it started to flesh out these characters out of costume, which was very welcome and uh, surprisingly early. I mean, it was only three issues in. Uh, he's also certain that this book will be a winner and will never, ever be canceled. So, uh, come back to us in a few years. Uh, Miguel in Puerto Rico says that he will start an X-Men fan club, which is probably the first X-Men fan club ever in existence. So if you know or if you are Miguel in Puerto Rico, uh, well, thank you for uh, you know assembling the X-Men fandom for the first time ever. The letters page for Issues 5 ends with a special announcement. It says that starting this month, five Marvel mags will contain letters pages. Where it was previously just Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four, now it'll be the Amazing Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, the X-Men, obviously, the Avengers, and Sergeant Fury. Also, the X-Men are going to be appearing in Fantastic Four number 28, which, uh, hey, we might just have to be getting to here at The Essentials. Hmm. Next, we hop into X-Men number 6's letters page, which talks about X-Men number 4, the seminal slog that introduced the Brotherhood and, of course, the Pretender. Uh, Freddie in Brooklyn, he wants Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch to join the X-Men He goes so far as to consider Quicksilver to be the most exciting superhero he's seen since Spider-Man Wow, um, hmm, uh, has, has he heard of the Flash? I don't, I don't know uh, Yeah, so people are very taken with uh, Pietro and Wanda here It's, uh, every letter we read here, they're gonna have a lot of nice things to say about the Maximovs here Next up, Larry in Michigan He loves the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants Which, you know, I've got some good news for you, Larry They ain't going nowhere They're gonna be around for a bit He absolutely adores Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch He says that he hated the art for the X-Men at first Like back in issue one But he likes it a lot now And, uh, hmm Larry, 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 Larry He, uh, suggests that the That Iceman's name is boring Which, I mean It basically is exactly what it says on the tin, right? He's Iceman, even though he looks more like a snowman But Iceman is, you know, easy, rolls off the tongue He suggests that they change Iceman's name to uh, Kid Cold With K, both K's like K-I-D-K-O-L-D Kid Cold Because it just sounds snazzier Thankfully, he was uh, never taken up on this So, uh, hmm Next up, Susan in San Jose She introduces herself as a humble housewife Which is kind of weird Makes me feel like some of these letters might be planted. I don't know. Uh, She wants Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch to join the X-Men just like, well, everybody, it seems. Uh, Next up, James in Pennsylvania. He considers X-Men number four to be the best Marvel mag ever. And he compares it to the works of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. Uh, He states that uh, Marvel Girl pulled a boner. On page 19, which I don't recall And considering uh, that We did see her tucking the professor Into his wheelchair, I hope uh, Never mind, never mind Um, He also loves Pietro and Wanda Duh, everyone does Last and, well, probably least uh, Kathleen in Missouri She loves Marvel, but Hates how many words they cram on the covers Well, Kathleen, if you're Still out there, and still uh, Are tangentially into, or maybe completely into comics. I wonder what your thoughts are on current year covers where you get the pinup cover, right? You get the pinup, you get the blank cover, you get the the pencil sketch cover, you get the 55 variant covers, you get the Wolverine as a baby cover, you get Cyclops as a hot dog cover. I wonder what your th- I'd love to hear uh, the thoughts of a uh, Silver Age fan who was complaining about the covers back then. What were your thoughts on the books of today? Hell, what, are the, what were your thoughts on the books of the 90s with the, the holograms, the, the foil, the embossing, the, the chromium, all that good stuff? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Kathleen, if you are out there. Please, feel free to write in. Uh, you know, uh, WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com Now, this issue ends with a special announcement as well. Now, Marvel states that they've received, quote, a zillion letters which demand that X-Men be made monthly. That will not happen for a White sometime um, The late 70s, if I'm not mistaken And uh, Stan puts it out there He asks if the readers think that Namor is actually a mutant And he even goes as far as to offer a no prize to anyone who can make it work So, uh, thinking caps on and, uh, get writing, you know um, I'm surprised that he's still a mutant these days <laughs> Considering everything that's gone on at Marvel over the past uh, decade and a half So, That'll do it for uh, our letters page for both X-Men number five and X-Men number six. We're going to be uh, making this a regular feature on the Essentials when uh, whenever we do an Essential episode. So I hope you enjoyed this, and I definitely look forward to hearing some thoughts on uh, not only the issue itself, but uh, but these fun letters as well. It's a uh, it's great to be able to dig into the, uh, the the gestalt, right, and to actually have some measure of first hand, or I guess second hand. Uh, tone and tenor of what the fandom thought about these things. It's one of my very favorite things to do as a uh, you know card-carrying, certified fake-ass comics historian. Um, I-, I love knowing what people thought in in the time. Right. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I still will spend hours and hours and hours digging through ancient, uh, you know, pre prehistoric internet Usenet posts, where we can get like almost you know, relatively speaking, real-time reactions to some of our favorites, not-so-favorites, and just some seminal moments in comics history. So this is going to be a lot of fun, I think. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this little dip into the uh, into the fandom of the day, as well as the issue itself, where the X-Men are firmly established as being parts of the shared Marvel Universe. But I think that's where we'll leave it for today. If anybody would like to write in and talk about Anything your heart desires, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, you can find me on Instagram at nineties X Men, you can shoot me an email over to Weird Comics History at gmail.com, or you can leave a voicemail at our little hotline. It's 396 jerk. Now for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to Chris's on infinite Earths.com. You can join us on Facebook, 90s X Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the tireless effort behind it, I would love for you to share the show, spread the word, tell a friend or two, and ask them to do the same. It would really, really help the show and really mean a lot to me personally. So thanks so much in advance. And also, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me today. It really, really means a lot. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.